The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 57 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, the podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Forever feeling it's unfair that I never got to go to Toy Fair in the 90s, I'm Adam. (laughs) And if Alex Ross had painted me in Kingdom Come, I'd truly never shut up about it. I'm Michael. And joining us tonight is a very special guest. He's the world's foremost expert on pop culture food history, and also the mind behind CollectingCandy.com, also WishBookWeb.com. A man who has graced your television screens through programs like Food Flashback on the Cooking Channel and The Food That Built America on the History Channel. But more relevant to our podcast, this gentleman worked on your favorite action figure packaging at Toy Biz after a run at DC Comics and eventually crossed the street to Marvel as an editor of the X-Men books from 1996 to 2000, even earning a feature article in Wizard Magazine. We're excited to welcome to the show the Indiana Jones of Snacks, Mr. Jason Lee. Big, how you doing? Hello, that's such an amazing introduction. Oh my goodness. Um, yes, you know, DC and Marvel weren't quite across the street, but yes, everything else absolutely accurate. <laughs> Anybody who's outside of New York City doesn't realize that they're not that close to each other in the city. I, I will often explain that where I live in Queens is nowhere near Brooklyn, believe it or yeah, not. Yeah, well, and I'm from California, so everybody's like, oh yeah, so that's right next to Los Angeles, right? I'm like, no, I'm from down south. <laughs> San Diego and Los Angeles, right next to each other, right? Right? Aren't they just a walk? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Don't you skateboard everywhere? Like, yeah, that's how we do it. We surf or skateboard. That's the only modes yeah. of transportation. But Jason, we're very excited to have the perspective of someone who had boots on the ground, so yeah. to speak, during this era. Yeah. But we want to go back to the beginning of your journey, find out what set you on the path to this uh, nostalgic and creative life you live. So please tell us your origin story. You know, look, um, at my fundamental nature, I am a nerd kid, didn't really know how to swing a bat growing up. We were just having this conversation on Twitter, like, do you remember your first comic? I don't really remember my first comic. I just remember comics being everywhere in my childhood, and I remember we did get a stack, my, my older brother and I, was three years older than me, my brother Jeff, and we had this stack of comics um, that we were given from someone, and I, I was just fascinated with the visuals. You know, there was a cover, I think, of like a House of Mystery, a DC book from the 70s, this was the 70s. You know, it was like showing like a flying saucer like shooting a beam down on a guy and where the beam hit him he was like this weird grotesque alien and uh, maybe a Mike Plugue cover or something or you know Bernie Wrights and some gorgeous Bernie Wrights and work but so this cover was just like I remember this thing burning into my mind and you know the 70s was a fascinating time I was really into wacky packages which, which for many of your listeners this is sort of a precursor to the garbage bill kids right. and it was just a very art driven life I was into the trading cards and it's interesting with Marvel Comics my first exposure to the characters believe it or not 
not was really through the Marvel superheroes trading cards the tops did or the stickers that they did in 1974 and 75. They would have word balloons, but it would be like Cyclops, and the word balloon would be like, oh, you're a sight for sore eyes. <laughs> These jokes written by somebody at Brooklyn at Tops in like their 60s or whatever. It's like, ah, what's this guy? And so when I finally started reading comics, maybe a, a year or two later, I just expected all these characters to have these like you know, these sort of weird <laughs> quotability to them. Of course, they did not. They were, you know, they captivated me in other ways. And then you jump ahead. I, you know, in the 80s, like a lot of people, as the direct market started to expand, I became a passionate comic book collector. It was an exciting time to, to read comics, to buy comics. Things were changing. You know, you I was still buying a lot of my comics at the grocery store Spinner Rack. But also we were driving. I lived in Nebraska in a small town. And we were driving to Omaha to go to the only comic book store we knew and science fiction store. And so we go there and, you know, take like your $15 and you come away with a stack of comics because they were only 40 cents or 35 cents. And what were your main titles, would you say, in that, in that era? I was 100% a Marvel kid and I bought a lot of stuff. Like I was obsessed with Captain Marvel. Like, let's see, I was reading Hulk. And I wasn't as much into Spider-Man, but I bought Spider-Man. I was, of course, into the X-Men. I mean, and so the X-Men was probably my number one, which is why, you know, later on in the chapter, getting that job that I did end up getting was profoundly exciting and very much a dream come true. So, yeah, so I was reading X-Men. I was obsessed with, like, Nightcrawler. John Byrne, Fantastic Four was fantastic. Well, huh? <laughs> And I always say the one thing that I was obsessed with with DC Comics in the 80s was Crisis on Infinite Earths. Because, I like, I always say, like, time travel. And, and nowadays, I guess, multiverse stuff is sort of just like, it's just like the pablum that I will eat, you know, nonstop. And when, I, when I was working as an editor, I said that the cheap things to do are time travel and making people related who were never related before. Those were, like, <laughs> those were like the cheapest moves you could make, the sort of lowest hanging fruit or whatever. And if, and if nothing else is working, just do that. Do some time travel or make people related who were never related before. But, uh, but yeah, I read Crisis on Infinite Earths because I thought, oh, that's super cool. Like, look, you've got one version of Superman and then another version. And I loved all that. So, of course, in 2022, I couldn't be happier. You know, you've got Spider-Man No Way Home and regular people in the street know what the multiverse is. That even four years ago, that would have been impossible. You know, and let me ask you this, Jason, just going back to those tops trading cards that you were talking about, you know, the Marvel characters definitely were getting licensed out everywhere. Same with DC. Like, I remember getting my Mr. Bubble, you know, flakes to go in my bathtub, and there was Wonder Woman and Batman and Superman. But, you know, you specifically are in the world of snack food, advertising and packaging and all those types of things. Is there a particular, like, superhero comic book crossover into the world of snack foods that was either from your childhood or just what you've researched? And find fascinating. I'll tell you the interesting thing in, about being a pop culture food historian. What I love about it is, and I'm gonna I'm gonna segue a little bit. I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of go off the reservation. Sure. The thing <laughs> that I love about it is, is I've always said it's like the fifth pillar of geek culture, nerd culture, like the food and the, and the candy and all this stuff. And the reason I say that is, is you know, and again. I say fifth, but I'm probably getting the numbers off. But, you know, there's things like comic books and movies and cartoons and toys and video games, you know, action figures. These are the things typically we as nerds and geeks have loved now for a few decades. These are the identified things. But the idea that you would love, like, a certain candy brand or, or a hostess treat or whatever, these these are sort of coming out of fruition a little bit. When I started 15 years ago, they still seem kind of wacky. But, but I would say the place where we foundationally gained our love of these brands, right, is some, from the same primordial adolescent stew where we found our love of Spider-Man and of, of Super Mario and of all these other things, and of these movies and TV shows that we love and cartoons. And so I think the love of those things 
comes out of the same place. One of the reasons why up until recently, why we have not connected in the same way with those things is because the nostalgia of it is largely unavailable. It's, it's an area you just couldn't go into. When I started writing about like candy, for instance, if I wanted to look up old candy wrapper pictures or something, there was maybe a couple hundred online. And so my favorite candy bar when I was a kid was this thing called the Marathon Bar from Mars. And the only image of a Marathon Bar wrapper was like an inch long, was like 50 pixels or something, right? And so I, I couldn't really absorb it. I could, it wasn't good enough. And so that drove me. And of course, over the last 15 years, I've published like 15,000 images of vintage candy packaging. Things. So I always say, if you, if you see an old candy wrapper or something like that, it was probably originally my posting, although <laughs> nowadays, who knows? So what that means to guys like us, and guys who know comics really well, I've always I've tried to explain it like this. Imagine Amazing Spider-Man issues one through one hundred, right? We you know we've read them, we love them, you know the John Romita stuff, all that great stuff, Steve Ditko, all those great issues. But imagine if issues like one through sixty didn't exist anymore. And when I say that, Marvel didn't have the film anymore. You know there were no there were no bound volumes. There were just no copies of those books. We all remembered reading them, you know, but no one had a physical copy to revisit it anymore. And or if like a, there was a Beatles album that was played on the radio, but it, but no one had a copy of that album anymore. And we would be forced to experience it just through memory. And I say through mythology. Yeah. And so I say the experience of the sort of geek experience or the nostalgic experience or the nerd experience around brands and foods is is largely has been experienced through mythology because you don't have any real visual or any kind of real solid anchor to plant a flag on. And so one of the things I've done, of course, is I've changed that. I, I mean, I've, I've made a real effort you know, with thousands and thousands of articles and whatever pictures. I've made an effort to change that. But when I started, you know, I was just sort of reaching into the dark and reaching for things. And I'm, I'm still reaching into the dark because still most of it is still nothing you can Google. There are things from the 90s, from the 80s that there are no images of at all. There are products, you know, that are forgotten. So getting back to your question, with regards to the superhero foods and things like that, those to me are the least interesting parts of what I do. <laughs> Not because I don't like them, but because those are actually the things people saved. I'll give you an example like Crunch and Munch, great boxed, you know, sort of caramelized popcorn treat. If you want a vintage Crunch and Munch box, it's going to be easy if you get the one from the Marvel Universe with Ron Lim, you know, who drew the Spider-Man yep. on the cover. There's a the way for the Marvel Universe poster. That one's going to be on eBay for time immemorial because every comic book collector in like 1993 – also decide, well, like one out of a hundred, and that's that's still like tens of thousands. So save that Crunch and Munch box. But if you want a Crunch and Munch box from 1978 that had no superhero tie-in, good luck. So I find that stuff to be the least interesting stuff. That said, there are a couple of interesting tie-ins that I do really love. One of them will probably not shock you. It is Combo Man. <laughs> yes, Combo Man. Combos Man or Combo Man is one of the great things. I think it was created when I was there at Marvel. And I know all those guys in creative services who would have created that stuff. And I actually know the guy I think helped design him. Combos Man is just great because, you know, if the 90s was a little crass at times in doing crossovers and doing things like that, Combos Man is sort of the crassest of all things. You know, he's got like Wolverine's claws. He's got, you know, Cyclops' visor, Spider-Man's you know, web shooters. He's everything. He's every hero mixed into one. And that's great. And the other thing, which is a little more organic, which I think is cool, is the Hostess, which Hostess has a long association with comic books, but the Hostess Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle pies, oh. which I am not personally as obsessed with them. I have a very good friend who has done some serious primary foundational research on this, and he's doing amazing work, like digging up the underground stories about 
Oh, I want to read all about that. Yeah. Sorry, but these are things, you know, that I'm fascinated with. And I think that's one of the great ones because it, it's not really a tie-in. It was just a real product that like that existed. And were it not for turtles, the turtle pies wouldn't have exactly existed, mm-hmm. even though it kind of was just a hostess vanilla pie. With green food coloring inside. Michael, did you ever have a Ninja Turtles hostess turtle pie? I do remember it now that you mention it. But no, I was not brave enough to have one of those things and, <laughs> and uh, have... Uh, green coming out of me afterwards so i was avoiding that not even with the promise of a sticker inside okay <laughs> that's right that's nope. i believe of certain era or certain age it's turning teenage mutant ninja turtle pies and ecto cooler those are Absolutely. sort of the, the, the grails of a certain age of kids i have an original ecto cooler juice box in my collection up oh, on a shelf see? here so i bet the hostess pies you can only find the magnets that's the only thing that ever comes up yeah oh my god those magnets yeah i know they fake you out so many of my things but no, it's like, that's why these days, and this is a whole other story, but like, if you're going to do something that has any kind of nerd cred and you're going to set it at a certain year, like, well, even they put it in Loki, you're going to have someone with an ecto cooler yep. because it is such the iconic piece of food packaging of a certain era. It's fantastic. Uh, well, Jason, I mean, we could talk about this all night and we're going to get into your history at Marvel as we go yes. through, because that is going to come out because yeah, your time there, I'm sure everybody is so excited to hear about the behind the scenes, but in the meantime, time a lot of the fun things we got to do back in the day is maybe you know you uh try to get some correspondence hey do you guys still sell ecto cooler try to get the recipe from coca-cola <laughs> with their high c brand but we are going to open up willie lumpkin's mailbag adam pope the master of the transition right there <laughs> fantastic All right. Now, what's interesting here in this issue, guys, is that the comic creators are once again using the magic words column to air their grievances like they're gathered around the pole at Festivus. It kind of cooled off for a while, but now Brian Polito, creator of Lady Death and Evil Ernie, is calling out Rob Liefeld. He says, I know people have been ripping on Rob Liefeld for swiping other people's artwork for years. I won't comment on that. It's not my department. But I just read Wizard number 53 and saw Liefeld swipe my signature pose, the dead Elvis, on the table of contents. Just check issue number 46, page 47, for the real first Wizard appearance of my pose. This swipe is absolute blasphemy! Oh my goodness. <laughs> Their response, can you really swipe a pose? I just don't know. Oh well. Looks like the possibility of a Lady Death Youngblood crossover just went out the window. I will tell you this though, the whole swiping controversy, if you guys have ever seen the 2001 film Josie and the Pussycats, there is a whole conversation about one character swiping the other character's pose and face. Oh, am I doing your face? Wow. Oh, so sorry about doing your face. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it has been brought up in cinema. It continues to be an issue. I would love to know if Polito and Liefeld patched things up here. <laughs> I truly hope they don't. <laughs> if if Polito's on our side, right? <laughs> I think I did a panel with Polito a couple of years back. Oh, yeah? Yes, your other friend, Buddy Scalera, invited me onto that one. And I, oh, think nice. I, did, I think I sat down from Brian, which I personally, I still, I was like, oh, 
man, this is like uh, I felt important then because I was on a on a panel with him. I was like, that this guy, bad. They, yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. Now, real quick here, just as a follow-up to issue 50, where Wizard provided statistics all about, like, all sorts of things that had gone on in the first 50 issues, but they specifically mentioned they had never printed a letter from Montana. Well, this issue now features two. I guess they're making up for lost time. One is from (laughs) Missoula, Montana, with a guy listing his favorite books, and he actually has a pretty funny response uh, about this, because he says here, P.S. I noticed in your 50th issue that you never printed a letter from Montana the treasure state that's because i'm the only one here that knows how to read of course i'm joking (laughs) there are actually at least a dozen who can but most of them can't write with anything but crayons (laughs) that's pretty good but then there's another guy who's asking all about bone comics and what brush does jeff smith use for inking and all this stuff and he is from billings montana the city where i currently reside here on my own island of retro comics geekiness i I gotta say though if Mile High Comics ever opened a superstore in Montana, it would definitely make some headlines, probably right next to Cattle Prices are on the move, boy howdy. Oh, wow. So, Michael, <laughs> it's time to queue up. Our top story tonight is Send Out the Clones! The Clones, man! <laughs> announces that the end of the Spider-Man clone saga is finally upon us. Uh, well, almost. Newly appointed editor-in-chief Bob Harris declares, We listen to our fans. They have spoken, and we are right now developing a storyline where we are going to put Peter Parker back into a Spider-Man costume. Providing clarification on the timeline, longtime Marvel ed- editor Ralph Macchio, not the same Ralph Macchio, <laughs> says, Over the next six months, we will get back to what Spider-Man should be. I hope the fans will hang on and give us a chance. Just hang on. Please. We need to keep the lights on in this place. We need to buy Spider-Man for a little while longer. There was a sigh of relief. It's really interesting, though, because in contrast to what Bob Budiansky, who had been the editor and had just been fired, had said just a, a few issues back, he's like, everything's going great. We're getting a wonderful reaction. So many more letters from the fans. <laughs> They're like, nope, course correct, course correct. But mentioned there is that Bob Harris, you know, was the editor-in-chief at this time. He was newly appointed. So I am curious to... Jason, did you have any interactions with Bob Harris as editor-in-chief at this time? I mean, look, Bob Harris hired me. Wow. Yeah, so I came over to uh, Marvel. You know, I, I was hired there. This is a little continuation of my origin story. Someone said, a friend of mine in marketing over there said, hey, they're looking for people over here. Say, if I was going to come back into comics directly, well, I wanted to work in editorial, right? I wanted to be part of the storytelling. And I said, look, I can't imagine they're going to hire me at Marvel Editorial, but I went in and I thought I was going to meet with someone in Human Resources for like a sort of preliminary interview and I get brought into Bob Harris's office. <laughs> and I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> you know? um, I was a little intimidated, but he sat down, okay, I hear you want to work in editorial. Yeah, and I was bold, I think. And he asked me what I thought made a good comic and what I thought made a bad comic. And I answered those questions. And then he had me back in a few days later with Mark Powers, who is uh, becoming the X-Men editor at that point. And then like a couple of days later, they offered me the job to be the assistant editor on the X-Men, which was absolutely mind-blowing. And also sort of to be the assistant to Bob in a way, even though he did end up getting a personal assistant later. But so to say that I spent time with Bob Harris uh, as editor-in-chief, 
I actually shared an office. Bob and Mark and I shared the corner office wow. for a good year and a half. Yeah. You know, you said boots on the ground during that era. I like to steal from Hamilton at this point. I was in the room where it happened for a <laughs> long time, for a tumultuous time. And when Bob would close the door so that people walking by would not hear the phone conversations or whatever, I was often still in the room across the room from his desk, but pretending like I was typing and instead just listening. <laughs> wow. Oh, and we're going to get into more of these stories yes. in just a little bit, because you have much to reveal like from billions. Yeah. <laughs> I have much to say about Bob, who I love and who I will always be indebted to. And I can tell you true stories of what was really going on, how it was really happening. Okay. Wow, yeah. that's cool. So Jerry Siegel, co-creator of Superman, receives a tribute in this issue after his death at the age of 81. Readers are reminded that Siegel also created the Spectre. I forgot about that. Wow, that's wild. amazing. Yeah, right? Among other comic book characters. Says comics historian Scott McCloud, his works have been overshadowed by the magnitude of the injustice done to him and Joe Schuster. He created an entire branch of American literature. That legacy is still with us. Have you ever stopped to think about that, though? Like, literally, with Superman, comics are truly born, like superhero comics. Like, a lot of times, oh yeah, he created Superman. It's like, no, he created the thing we all love and the reason Wizard exists. You know, like, he co-created that. That's amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. And when you read it in those kind of words, you're like, wow. That's why I was trying to read it with some sort of reverence, because I yeah. felt like it is a big deal, you know? I mean, I remember when they did a big tribute when Jack Kirby died, but, like, this is even, even though Jack Kirby is such a major influence on comics, this is a bigger thing because it is Superman. This is, like you said, the first real superhero character that we see in the world. This is in reference to the fact that Siegel and Schuster were paid just $130 for the rights to Superman and eventually were shut out of comics after suing DC for not compensating the duo when Superboy comics launched in the 1940s. Longtime Superman writer Roger Stern says, despite all the raw deals they may have gotten over the years, there's no way they could be adequately paid for what they did. The amount of money doesn't exist in the world. They gave us Superman. They gave us a legend. And I think that's true. And I think, you know, when the estates went after them in what, like 2010, 2011 or so, it was long overdue, in my opinion. Well, and they did it in the 70s, obviously. You know, Neil Adams was leading that charge to get there and then give them credit, you know, like, and you, you hear the stories, like, they were living in these, like, tiny apartments, they had, like, no money, like, all that kind of stuff, so, but yeah, it's, it's just, like, always trying to get that, you know, for the creatives to be compensated adequately, but this is the question I have, you know, you were talking about speaking of this in reverence, Michael, but with Superman as a character, do you feel we're too cynical as comics readers now in the way that, you know, the in the world where Watchmen exists and, you know, the boys and all that kind of stuff, like, is the character of Superman as the one who started it all actually appreciated and enjoyed or is it just like well you know he's an icon I think it's the reverse I think comic book fans when we see Superman on screen like Christopher Reeve in the Superman movie or even Henry Cavill in Man of Steel the first moment that they like take flight your childhood wonder of like oh my god Superman is flying. It, it like takes your breath away. I think it's 
the non-comic book fans that are the cynical ones and are the the trolls, if you will, or this isn't Superman to me, man. Superman's boring. I think. <laughs> why has he got his underwear on outside his pants? Yeah, why has he got his underwear on? Just to continue on that a little bit, and Adam, to address your question, because yeah. honestly, I, what you said, you know, are we too cynical? Um, I can tell you from being a DC Comics and Marvel Comics 20, almost 30 years ago, we were having, we were asking those questions then, you know. Um, because, well, to, you know, to bring it back to Rob, the 90s was ostensibly a very extreme time in comics. Yes. And, you know, the idea of this Boy Scout, essentially, this, this non-cynical, this very sincere character, it was a legitimate question to wonder whether that character could connect with people. You know, and of course, Mike Carlin, you know, it was the executive editor of Superman and, and DC for a time. And so he battled with those questions and his creators did. Dan Jurgens, who I know you guys are going to talk about later. Sorry. Is, is, is very adept at addressing a lot of this stuff. I mean, look, I, I would say I would just double down on what Michael says, at least part of it where, you know, I personally definitely don't think we're too cynical. I think the challenge for comic books in particular and the character in general is always you know, you've imbued this character with so much power. It's always a challenge to figure out how to how to write for the character, how to tell stories, you know, that, that challenge the character in, in interesting ways without always going back to Kryptonite like they did, like, I don't know, in the first <laughs> season to Smallville. But if you've watched, what is it, Lois and Superman, Superman and Lois, you know, they really do capture exactly what Michael said when you see him fly or when you see him show up. And he exudes this this gravitas and this sort of, you know, this sense of wonder, right? That's, that's something Chris Claremont always used to say, the sense of wonder. And it does capture that. Yeah. Well, and I think where we're at now, because DC has pushed Batman so hard and Batman just gets darker and darker, the Joker's <laughs> face gets ripped off and he stitches it back <laughs> on it. Like, it's, it's so bad that I feel like we're at a Batman overload saturation point that within a few years, it might flip towards like, you know what? We need just a hopeful, bright character. Give us a great Superman film and don't make it Zack Snyder Superman film. You know what I'm saying? And and we may, everybody may be on board for that. And then the comics can pick up and we'll, I'm, I'm hoping we come out of that because I think we've had enough doom and gloom in life and in comics yeah. for long enough. So I mean, look, look no further than Captain America in the Marvel films. If you want to see, if you want to talk about the cinematic version, I mean, how much do we love how pure they play Steve Rogers, right? I right. mean, really do. He's very noble, you know, and it's captivating, right? He doesn't, you know like doesn't have testosterone, that's for sure. He he, he's awful. he's noble, but he still has some flaws. Like you could see, like there's there's some weakness there, and it's it's a relatable like yes weakness in that sense. And and you know, I think not just in the like comic book world of you know these darker movies like the batman and so on and so forth i think just our world in general needs something like like a superman movie that's a real honest and heartfelt kind of story about this genuinely special character that we kind of lift our spears a little bit because the world is just so negative. Yeah, someone will crack it, I believe. Someone's going to crack that story and give us what we need. All in good time with this new regime with, you know, Discovery taking over DC Comics. Yes, we believe they will discover what we've all been waiting for. <laughs> this we've guy. Been saving that the up. transition. Wow. <laughs> all right. So, capping off our DC news items, the Justice League is returning to their roots in a book that will include the original lineup of heroes. Grant Morrison has been given the reins to write the JLA with art by Howard Porter 
and a roster consisting of Superman, Batman, The Flash, Green Lantern Kyle Rayner, Aquaman, Wonder Woman, and Martian Manhunter. Says Morrison, I know that you can't go wrong with it because we're dealing with the major superhero icons of the last 50 years. And this book continues to be held as a high point in the JLA history. Did either of you guys read this run at all? I, I did. My friend from DC Comics, Ruben Diaz, was the editor of that. And, you know, with Grant coming on at that, you know, and Grant hadn't done a lot of the big superhero comics at that point. And obviously that was something he would be doing a lot more of after JLA. But Justice League was a terrible property at that point. And all of a sudden it became this very captivating comic and a very successful one. And Grant was the unexpected star of, of making that happen. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because I did not read it at this time. And I started reading through the issues this week just to get familiar. And I was like, I like the setup. Not a fan of Howard Porter's art, but I did think it was so interesting what they do at the beginning because you see who the current Justice League members are, and it's like Metamorpho and Fire and all these characters with like <laughs> terrible new costume updates for the 90s. Like they look so bad. And then the icons come in, and you're like, wow, okay, yes, this is exactly what we needed. You got to wipe that roster clean and bring on, you know, the big guns. So I'm excited to read a little bit more into this because it's pretty fascinating. Fascinating. Now, what, what you said speaks to an interesting problem or, or a cycle in comics, which is costume redesigns, character replacements, you know, and the sort of cycle of bringing the, the replacement in and then bringing the classic back and, and so on. And of course, you bring back those characters for Justice League, right? But like, good for them for trying Metamorpho and trying all these weird ass characters, right? Yeah. Honestly, that's what we, well, we, that's what you'd hope that you'd be trying to do in comics, right? Trying to do crazy, weird new stuff. Or is it, we're just going to go back to these characters y'all know and love, and then we're going to tell some, you know, you take them for granted. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Close this out here, Michael. And finally, there's an ad in this issue of a new comic book rating system from Big Entertainment, which seems to have been inspired by the comic book adaptation of the Robert Rodriguez film From Dust Till Dawn. The rating system uses an image of a knife that is dripping blood to indicate graphic violence, a word balloon with random symbols in it to warn about mature language, and a silhouette of a naked woman. I always get these ridiculous. Right off of a big rig mud flap. I remember those mud flaps. Oh, yeah. Give you a thrill on a long road trip. Yeah, sure. As a means of telling parents that this book contains mature situations. Now, the hilarious thing about this, Michael, is that it actually says, so next to the graphic violence one, it says exit wounds, mouths of disembodied organs, that sort of thing. The mature language. Which naughty words. And then with the mature situations, it's, you know what we're talking about here. <laughs> oh, yeah. Giggity, giggity. I believe their marketing guy came from Marvel. I think I remember. I think he gave me a tour before I started in comics. I think. Wow. That's true story, yeah. God, I remember big entertainment. It was it was one of the companies to come up in the sort of post-boom, right? Yeah, they were just there kind of a little late. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I think their whole big thing was, and of course, even in 95, 96, I just rolled my eyes so hard when I heard this. They were going to build these kiosks in malls, and that was going to be where they put their comics. They weren't going to worry about comic stores. You know, obviously everything changes, but it was, you know, it just seemed like it was... You're not... telling me there could have been a red box for comics back in the day? I guess. 
I, know. I feel like they were going to man them, like a like a sunglass hut or something. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. See, that, uh, you said like a red box, which sounds great. I thought sunglass hut. Like so. a kiosk, okay. Yeah. yeah so That's maybe, wild. Maybe they did have a red box idea. That would have been cool. I would, I would have been much, down with Much that. smarter idea than mine. I would have felt less shame, like, you know, just like going to the machine, boop, and I could like look, no one sees me <laughs> and I'll run away. <laughs> Talk about something that's changed, right? So it's pretty hilarious in its execution here. And yet, forward thinking, as Marvel Knights would eventually add ratings to their covers when a mature Marvel imprint launched later. Yes, I mean, it feels like they were ahead of the curve there, you know, because it was, uh, you know, on the horizon. I mean, they were already putting naughty stuff, and there were all these raids going on that we've reported on, like the police are cracking down on comic book stores for obscenity and all this stuff, so... Comic book leave was good Defense Fund really came to the fore at that point. You know, it's fascinating because when I was at Marvel, we also, before Marvel Nights, we were going to try to do a mature reader's line with some of the horror books and stuff. These things were in development. And then I believe it was that Walmart said, if you publish these books, we will not carry Marvel comic books in our stores anymore. Wow. And I remember because Stan was out. Stan didn't come out very often, but Stan was in New York. And like the day that we got the news, like Ralph was working on some of those books. Bobby Chase was working on some of those books. I was not, but, but they were interesting, right? They, they, I think there were going to be some interesting books and it was going to be an attempt to try to do something differently. And all of a sudden, the president of Marvel, because that was during the bankruptcy, it's like, well, we can't afford to have Walmart not carrying our books. So it's like, it's all canceled. Anyway, so that's, uh, you know, an insider story. But boy, that was a bummer. Yeah, that's wild. But yes, crazy stuff. Well, speaking of crazy stuff, we have a lot to cover here in this issue. I mean, there is so much news, but let's start out here with our table of contents. We're going to be discussing issue 57 of Wizard with a May 1996 cover date, which had two different covers. Now, the first is a Heroes Reborn Jam cover by Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld, featuring Captain America and Iron Man. Now, let me read this to you here. This is from the Wizard Big Book of Covers, okay? This is their story. Jam covers, loved by our sales department because it can market more premier names, and hated by our design department because of the risks involved. (laughs) These covers demand enormous amounts of time, coordination, and communication in order to be successful. And this one somehow never came together. The idea was to have Captain America, drawn by Rob Liefeld, and Iron Man, drawn by Jim Lee, fighting side by side. Cap was drawn first by Rob Liefeld, who must have re-envisioned this image as a montage, because where you see the art end on the cover is where the art ends on the original drawing. This presented a challenge for Jim Lee to fit Iron Man into the piece, but he did a bang-up job with the space he had to work with. The final result... uh, we wish we had more time to do this one over. <laughs> oh, Rob. It's like, I just thought it'd be cool. You know, like giant cap, right? <laughs> so he does what he wants to do. That's the Rob Liefeld way. If you want to do a podcast about Rob, we could talk about him. I got a lot about Rob. <laughs> it sounds very provocative. I have mostly kind things to say about Rob. We'll hear about it soon enough. You, you could drop some of those things that'll make us feel warm and fuzzy. Good. Now, the second cover was an Alex Ross Kingdom Come cover featuring Superman, Wonder Woman, and Red Robin with the faintest hint of the Flash behind him. Now, the full image that Ross actually painted features Green Lantern and the 
Flash as well. They were cropped out, but the full lineup is actually used as a quarter picture on the Lee Liefeld cover, so you can actually see all of them. But what's funny is if you look at Red Robin, you think it's Michael Keaton Batman, but it's just because the Flash's winged helmet is creating the illusion of bat ears behind him. So it's just a clever layout by Alex Ross. <laughs> Goodness, he's so good. He's got it all figured out. Now, this issue came packed with a Wizard Purgatory Clear Chrome card, a Cyberforce promo trading card, and a Malgum promo trading card, and some issues even had an Overpower game card inserted. Wow! Yeah, can you believe it? <laughs> uh, now, the Heroes Reborn cover is actually the poster inside this issue. That was something that went away for a while, and a lot of times you'd get a poster, but it was not the cover image, and here, giving the people what they wanted. Uh, but it was backed by a Brian Ahern calendar for the month of May, you know, just like fully illustrated with all these cartoony comic book characters and this day in history type stuff. Plus, inside was a Wildstorm, Fire from Heaven, half comic offer to, you know, celebrate that crossover that was happening over at the Wildstorm Studios. But getting into our cover story here, Brave New World, guys, is yet another article providing more info, as much as they could get, everybody wanted it, on Lee and Liefeld returning to Marvel to produce Heroes Unborn. <laughs> Heroes Unborn. <laughs> that would be a good title, though. Oh, man. What if heroes were never born? Somewhere at Marvel right now, it's like, hey, we're going to do another throwback to Heroes Reborn. We're going to call it Heroes Unborn. Get Rob on the phone. <laughs> Don't tell him. He won't do it if we're involved. Don't tell him it came from our podcast. Yeah, that would not go over. Uh, what's interesting, though, is the reboots were being promoted under the banner of Unfinished Business at this time. It was not Heroes Reborn yet. That must have been in the works. Do you have any insider information on that, Jason? Do you remember discussions and things you were hearing about this as it was coming together? It was dark because this appeared to be something that came from outside of editorial. This was sort of an idea that was negotiated between Jim and like whatever president of Marvel was president that, that month. You know, it was a very threatening feeling. It was a very creatively threatening feeling. Of course, you had Ron Garney and Mark Wade doing Cap with Bobby Chase um, at Marvel at that time, bringing that book to great acclaim. And that was probably the one. The rest of the books, don't get me wrong, Avengers was not doing well. You know, Iron Man was not interesting, all that stuff. So those books were not terribly good at that point. But the Cap thing felt like, ooh, this is a crushing blow, but it also felt very threatening. I don't really remember the unfinished business, that changing to Heroes Are Born or, or how that was marketed. I just remember a lot of other things. Yeah, <laughs> and we're going to hear a little bit more about that shortly. But of the task in front of them at this time, Liefeld says, quote, if we can't launch these characters and make them work, we're going to have an industry full of vigilantes and half naked women. Yes, wise words for the man who brought us glory and Evangeline and Blood Wolf. <laughs> yes, indeed. We don't want those those violent characters, no. Now, regarding how they will launch these titles, Jim Lee says, quote, I know in a general sense that Onslaught sets up what we're doing, but I don't know the specifics about what happens, other than Onslaught is X-Men related. So basically saying, I care about my books. <laughs> Continuing his thought here, last time around, Rob said, well, I'm not changing Cap's costume. I already told Mark Wade, and then he put the eagle instead of the A. And now he says, explaining his vision for Captain America, Rob reveals that Cap, quote, will have no shoulder pads or heavy artillery. Basically, he has his shield and his agenda. So that's what was going on there. And then as for the Avengers lineup in that book, in addition to Captain America, Iron Man, Hulk, and Thor, the team is going to include Scarlet Witch, who is now a shield agent, Vision, Hawkeye, Swordsman, and 
and Hellcat, but all in a way we've never seen them before. With tiny feet. Yeah. <laughs> and then as for Jim Lee's vision of Iron Man and Fantastic Four, he basically says he's just going to go back to the old school setup for the characters. So that's what he's, he's like. In Iron Man, he's like, we're just, he's going to be reliant on his armor. He's going to have to live inside of it. And Fantastic Four is just, you know, Lee and Kirby era Fantastic Four with a new coat of paint on it. So I'm curious for you here, Jason, uh, as you were, you know, hearing about Onslaught, you were there with Bob Harris. Uh, as as we understood it, this was at least Rob Liefeld on his Rob Observations podcast has said this was a backdoor method that Marvel's established so that it would just be a pocket universe they could wipe clean and get back to the status quo. Is that your understanding of what Onslaught was all about? Yeah, I mean, look, first of all, you just had the problem of how do you erase the Marvel superheroes characters, right? And then, you know, you connected it to, as far as Onslaught's creation, Onslaught, the initial nugget of an idea, that was a throwaway Scott Labdell thing. So Scott Labdell was very much an improvisational writer, and with Bob Harris to guide him, and a good editor to guide him, it could really work out, but the, the word Onslaught came about with, with Scott saying, hey, wouldn't it be cool if on the last page of this issue, um, Juggernaut just shows up and he's been punched, like someone punched out Juggernaut, and the only word on his lips is Onslaught, and I was like, well, what does that mean i don't know yet wouldn't that be cool so i think what happened was when the heroes were born agreement and the contract came out and that whole thing started to come together onslaught was sort of put to use um in that way yeah, well, and it's interesting because it sounded like Mark Wade in a previous interview we covered decided, you know what? They've had that X traitor thing hanging around unresolved for years and years. How about Professor X is the X traitor? Is that what I'm understanding? That was the wrap up there. I don't remember that, but that's, it could very well be true. Getting back to my origin story, the one thing I will tell you when Bob Harris asked me what I thought was a good comic, what I thought was a bad comic in my first interview, and this is the interview that essentially got me the job. He asked me what a good comic was. I, I told him a story about this Mark Wade super man story which i love and then i told him i gotta say as far as bad comics like you guys are doing this thing called onslaught <laughs> no keep in mind <laughs> me, right? you guys are doing this thing called onslaught and as i understand it it's professor x becomes the big bad villain you know i don't think people said big bad at that point but i said it's, he becomes the big villain i said honestly like dc just did that with hal jordan becoming parallax and i said i didn't really think it executed all that well i didn't really like the way it ended and um so i just didn't think it was that original and like the groom is really silent right i mean there were only two of us bob harris is sitting there and he's like yeah that was my first impression of it too wow <laughs> and i think i think that's how i got the job like that was my wow. ballsy move right but it was just when he asked me the question i wasn't expecting it and that's really you know i just searched my thoughts really and i was i had just been talking to someone about onslaught but insofar as what you said about the x trader um i don't know but i would trust mark to to remember that and remember that accurately that sounds accurate yeah sure okay well cool so now here's the thing though when this was announced that they were coming back you know from all sides some people were psyched some people were angry and so and that, that was both like you're saying in editorial and fans themselves so responding to this explosive outcry from the fans and fellow comics pros Liefeld says quote I expected the reaction we've gotten but I don't know why people are so preoccupied with it I don't understand their anger I can understand the resentment of the people who are no longer working on these books but with the other people I'm not sure why it has everyone's shorts twisted up in a bundle I think a lot of this reeks of jealousy <laughs> wow, Rob. More gas on the fire there. Jason, you were there. So what was your take on that reaction from the fans and also, again, what you were seeing from your fellow Marvel employees? Interestingly enough, we would get all of the sort of final um, blue line books to approve all the Heroes Reborn stuff before it went to print, right? We had to go through it. And 
because we really had no ability to have input or to check on things, we realized this very early on. No one really wanted this unenviable task. So I was sort of the person who became the go-between between Marvel editorial and Heroes Reborn editorial. I guess I was kind of a gossip or something, but I was like, I, I, I said, I'll do it. <laughs> and so I sort of knew all the ins and outs of the deal and the, the executives. And when like Rob would do something wrong or they would violate the spirit of the contract or the terms of the contract. And the president was like, no, play nice with them because we don't want it to look bad because I want to continue being president. There was a lot of that going on. So executives were protecting the Heroes Reborn deal because that was their deal, right? If Heroes Reborn sold millions of comic books, whoever was currently president would look good. So there was that going on and everything. So anyway, so I can't tell you how, how the fans responded. I, I can tell you a couple of interesting stories about how editorial responded. Sure. There was a point after the first issues uh, launched where we had an editorial meeting where Bob Harris said, well, okay, this is, this is obviously sold a bunch of comic books. What do we think? Is this something we could have done ourselves? Could we have done this internally? And this was, a, this was actually a question that Bob asked that sort of, informed my, some of my decisions over the next few years and some of the things I fought for as a Marvel editor. And I don't remember a lot of what was said, maybe because I was a egotistical little son of a bitch, <laughs> because I do remember what I said. I said, there's a, there's a lot of this you cannot reproduce because a part of it is it's these guys who left, right? So you can't do that internally because it's literally external. So you can't internally reproduce this external part of Heroes Reborn. But the rest of it, aside from that, what did they have? Well, they had about six months to sort of relaunch the book, six to eight months to sort of figure out what they were going to do, do their first issues. They had budgets that were far higher than any budget that anybody at Marvel currently had for a single issue of a book. They were being paid a lot of money for each issue of Heroes Reborn. So each issue of Avengers, each issue. So um, I won't get into the amounts, but it was a lot. And there were certain contracts that Marvel Editorial, some previous executive, had made with like our digital coloring house, these guys called Graphic Color Works in Ireland, that they were the guys who had to digitally color like 65 or 75 percent of our books. And they were not very good at it. And so you could still sort of pardon out like 25% of the book. So like Uncanny X-Men got Christian Leitner and Liquid to do the Liquid Colors. But all of the Heroes Reborn books got to have all their hot digital colorists. So I said, look, we could do it, but who's going to say, okay, in six months, we're going to fire all your creative teams. And for the next six months, we're going to spend triple the amount that we normally pay to get new creative teams going. Because listen, your current creative teams are going to find out about that. They're not going to like it. But I said, I think there's ways we can do this internally. I think we should be doing it. I was very much against Heroes Reborn. <laughs> I said, I think we should be doing this. I think Marvel Editorial as an existing ongoing thing needs to be the driver of these things. I was a true believer to use Stan's words, whether or not that was always right or wrong, whether or not Bob Harris was always right or wrong in, in his larger strategic decisions, that was what I believed. I believed in the House of Ideas. I believed in these things. So um, I was definitely a true believer, and I believe this was sort of an abandonment of how Marvel Comics were made. And no disrespect to Robert Jim, but like, I just said, this is not how we should do books. I felt the same way about Marvel Knights, even though I knew those guys and liked those guys. I felt the same way about that. And there are other details about these things that I felt about very strongly, about, which is why I had to leave eventually. <laughs> yeah, well, like you say, yeah, it's a disruption, but it was a desperate time and they had to make a move and they had to do something to get people's attention. And there it was. And maybe some people would justify and say it was worth the expense and you know, got attention. And now people are reading again, maybe the same way like Death of Superman, you're doing a big thing thing and then people start reading again maybe they had fallen off get some attention for a while you're making me angry adam 
<laughs> and one of the things they promised, right? And I, so I like, listen to me, I'm such an aggrieved widow. <laughs> one of the things they said, and this was one of the big promises, I believe it was in the contract, is we can get talent Marvel editorial cannot get. That was one of the big things. And that was one of the things we took deeply personally, right? Like Jim and Rob said, they can get talent we cannot get. And how that plays out, I think within the first four issues of Heroes Reborn is fascinating. <laughs> it's interesting, yeah, to see how the books came out. Now, I will say the one thing I noticed is soon as Rob was off of Captain America, the books got turned over to Jim Lee to continue and all of that. The first thing they did in that issue number seven is you have Captain America literally rip the eagle off of his cowl and put the A back on. And that was not Thank subtle. Goodness. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> No, but I totally understand it. It's great to hear the other side because, yeah, there was a four-part observations exploration from Rob's point of view. Four-part. He gets in every detail. I yeah. think I heard about this, and I, I honestly, like, you know, I don't listen to as many podcasts as I, as I guess I, I would like to. I think I did hear about that because one of the things about Heroes Reborn that I think is, to me, and again, maybe it has been told, I think is one of the great untold stories of Marvel. And I actually was interviewed for, I think, the untold stories of Marvel for, I think, a couple two-hour things. And then everything I talked about got turned into, like, one footnote. I think it was Sean who was the writer of that. I said, listen, man, you don't realize how close Marvel came to no longer publishing comic books. You know, during Heroes Born, Heroes Born was a huge financial success. It certainly appeared that way. So one of the rumors that started to spread around about halfway through that was that Marvel was going to license all their characters out and they were going to shut down Marvel editorial. And so they're going to do like ultimately the way they did with their movies. So like there were rumors that like DC was going to get the Fantastic Four, you know, and all these different things. And that sounded pretty legitimate, especially when Mark Powers, who was the it was the senior editor on the X-Men, reached out to one of the Wildstorm guys was like, was it Dave Finch or somebody? I can't remember exactly. And he was being offered a job of penciling the X-Men. And he said, I can't really take it because Jim said we're getting the X-Men in six months. <laughs> now, this is coming from a professional who works for Jim Lee, who's currently doing, you know, Fantastic Four and, and these Heroes Reborn books. And this is being told to the editor of the X-Men who can write a pretty good contract or a pretty good check to do the X-Men. Working, like, the X-Men were the number one and number two books in the business at the time. And someone's turning that offer down because they said, well, Jim says they're going to have the X-Men in six months. And that became this, you know, and again, I don't know how much of that has been written. I've certainly told, like I said, I, I told the guy who wrote the untold stories of Marvel. I don't know that any of this has ever been written. I don't know if Rob conveyed that in his podcast. I'd be fascinated to know if he did. Yeah, he had a whole discussion about how Marvel operations almost moved to California. They were going to set up shop there and Jim Lee was going to run Marvel Comics. That's interesting. They were putting that in place and then it fell through. So, so yeah, we had a we had a new president during that time who wasn't there at the beginning, a guy named Scott Sasa, who had come from launching like seven networks at Turner. And I was the was the gadfly the right term. He was came out to the Marvel bullpen, had all the employees come out, and I infamously just torrentially flooded him with questions. I was like, "And sir, look at what Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld have done to the, the jewels in their crown." Like I said, Wildcats launched with this many sales because I spent I was there the night before with Matt Ragone, the VP of sales, going through six years of sales or five years of sales and showing how Rob and Jim's like best books had fallen 
going way, way, way down because <laughs> I was making this whole case to Scott Sasa. Wow. Uh, it looks good right now, but that's just because it's new and they've got all these resources. They're great for a number one. Always great for a number one. And after that, Scott Sasa started calling me into meetings. Now I was an assistant editor and I think other editors in the row were like, why is he talking and at a certain point? Like Bob signaled Mark Powers. Tell him to shut up. He's, he's, he's <laughs> but I was like, I think I was there in the offices going through sales numbers until like 10 or 11 o'clock the night before wow. preparing this meeting. So because I said, if we don't convince these people, I said, Jim Lee is going to get on a plane. He's going to fly out to New York while Jim Lee's on the plane. He's nothing to do it before. He's going to sit on the plane. He's going to take out a piece of artboard. He's going to draw what the X-Men should look like under his creative eye. He's going to show it to them because Jim is a f- charismatic guy he's going to show it to scott sasser whoever the president was at that point and all of a sudden marvel comics isn't going to publish comics anymore jim lee's going to publish Marvel. that that event was one of those things that i was trying to do to fight back on that. wow see we're getting the inside scoop on the, the war from within the tactics marvel editorial hang it on there's so many things people talk about Marvel at that time. You know, the bankruptcy. Look, the bankruptcy wasn't because Marvel Comics as an operation wasn't doing well. It was because they had $750 million of debt leveraged against Marvel Entertainment because Ron Perlman had borrowed companies and borrowed against the equity of Marvel. That was it. It wasn't that Marvel Comics was making money. Just overextended. Well, they overextended their, their credit, and they also essentially gave away the money they were making from the toys, but that's another story. Now we're going to jump not quite across the street, as you said. We're going to go down and around, and we're going to hit up the DC offices somewhere uh, in New York City, because our other cover story, Thy Kingdom Comes, is a sketchbook of the Alex Ross designs for the upcoming Elseworlds miniseries featuring the older versions of DC's iconic heroes. As Ross explains, quote, All the designs are based on what I wanted to do. With no outside input, this is all pure and undiluted as far as my vision of how it should look. That's very common. Comforting and satisfying. Ross provides commentary for each drawing, each little sketch you see here. So I'm just curious for you guys, is there something in one of these sketches that stood out to you, just a character design you love, or in some of his commentary, something you learned that kind of fascinated you? Look, I was at DC when these pages were coming in, the original Kingdom Come art. And wow. I did, and I, as Michael teased at the beginning, I was painted into a crowd scene. Hey. Uh, mine and a few of my colleagues were painted into a crowd scene. Because um, hey. I did, what do I did you have, know? yeah, I did have very wonderful interactions with uh, Alex, which unfortunately I soured when I criticized the way he presented Wolverine and, and Earth X later on. But that's another story. Uh-oh. Um, I didn't think, look, I did I was just complaining to the editor in chief, who was my friend. I didn't think anyone else would hear about it. <laughs> Go figure. But the thing about Kingdom Come is, my God, the book looked great, but dear Lord, the art, the original boards, are were amazing because look you cannot capture all of those colors in the palette that he was using it's like seeing an original norman rockwell when you see it in person the light is just more profound so alex's stuff was so amazing and i i'm, I'm sorry but like his superman you felt the power spectacular yeah, yeah oh, I could imagine. yes he is so good at that stuff and you know such an interesting guy an interesting guy to get to know but it just you know seeing the work seeing Kingdom Come and I know Kingdom Come was a very clear metaphor for comics in the 90s for those who don't know well that's the thing I didn't know till it was revealed in a little wizard blurb they put there I was like oh of course but I yeah. did not see it as a kid reading it in the 90s I was too close to it I guess yeah but it was so getting these things I remember Dan Rasper I think was the editor at that point getting these 
these pages in, it was just, he goes, oh, we got some more pages in. I was like, please let me see them. Look, Alex is just his ability to take these iconic characters, you know, reimagine them and give them real life and, you know, make them feel real. Before we had all these movies doing such a good job of it. It was just powerful, amazing. Kingdom Come, again, what a great name. It all felt so consequential. You know, even though it was the story set in a period we haven't, we weren't revisiting in any way. Um, it felt very consequential. It felt very powerful. It felt very meaningful. So, Michael, I think I know who your favorite character is, but just confirm it for me. I don't think you do. No? Because I was going to say Red Robin. Well, yeah, I would say Red Robin is probably (laughs) way, way up there. I love that Green Lantern look, though. I really, really do. You know what I really liked? Not a character that gets a major amount of play in the book. So one the, the the daughter of Dick Grayson and uh, the she looks like Starfire sort of right yes 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 yeah. that I love the design of that character I love the way they redesigned Jade as well and you know what it is the thing that I love and especially reading this now again is when you read about what he did with the Flash like the way the Flash is literally just almost like a ripple of himself everywhere I love that concept well the question I always had about that though is he looks naked and he would be a red blur if he had his costume on but he doesn't have his costume on from what we can see so uh, did his skin just turn red because he's moving so fast <laughs> it's like yeah. well you know um, objects in motion there is a thing we call in, in astrophysics called the red shift well professor thank you <laughs> Reed Richards over there. <laughs> Red shift is how we can identify what stars are made of in other in other galaxies and solar systems. That's how wow. we do it. Yeah. Well, there it is. Hey, Alex Ross, <laughs> he's got it all figured out. But I will say, I wish that they would go back to the Red Robin costume for somebody. Like when Dick, when uh, Tim Drake had it pre fifty two, oh, it was the best. That's a great costume. But sticking with DC, Dan Jurgens, the Wizard Q&A, is an interview with the man who had made a splash drawing the death of Superman at DC a few years prior, but at this point had been floating on and off projects for other publishers, especially over this last year of the publication, with Wizard basically calling him out in this interview for spending just seven months on Sensational Spider-Man at Marvel and nine months on Solar, Man of the Atom for Acclaim. And Jurgens explains that he had every intention of being on those titles for a while and remembers as a fan how disappointed he would be when favorite creators only stayed for a short time on the book but says Jurgens quote in both the Spider-Man and Solar cases we are dealing with an extreme set of circumstances that reflect very much the state of the industry today there were changes in the industry and Marvel obviously reacted to those changes and now they are doing things that are quite injurious to the industry in the short term and in the long term as well Marvel right now seems to be in an absolute state of chaos on a good day so Jason, you've explained to us that the revolving door of presidents and all these people trying to take charge and ideas. But as far as like this chaos that was going on over there, uh, you said you had friends over at DC. Was it just smooth sailing? Was DC like, ah, it's fine. And you guys are just like, ah. (laughs) Well, you know, look, I mean, I think with the bankruptcy, with Heroes Reborn and with a, I I tell people, I think in four years, uh, you know, I experienced like eight different corporate presidents. It's starting with Terry Stewart was the first one. Terry was a lovely guy. And then it was Joe Calamari. There was another Joe. Um, you know, Scott Sasso was one. So it, it, that was chaotic. When, you know, when we started coming out of the bankruptcy, when the likes of Ike Perlmutter, that lovely human being, was controlling things, then just really terrible, dark things were happening. And so, you know, like the, like the day they took Stan Lee off the comp list or whatever. 
And so there were terrible things like that. There was a uh, Millie who was the, in charge of accounting who had been there since like the, you know, the fifties or whatever. She was, they, they based at least a name, the character Millie, the model on Millie. And Millie was, Millie had been there from the beginning of the Marvel universe. She was like the only person really at Marvel New York. She retired six months later. They brought her out of retirement because they needed her help. And then like I fired her. <laughs> which is just a terrible thing to see anyway i don't want to get into that too much but so dan who is a lovely person dan jergens absolutely lovely guy you know really deserves all the credit he gets and and really is just a fabulous representation of a creator in comics just you know really stand-up guy talented knows his stuff loves comics yeah it's look it was chaotic and you know you were trying to do good work i would say bob harris was shielding Marvel editorial from a lot of that chaos. But because I shared an office with him, I would hear about a lot of it. And so the crazy things being thrown at him from on high was, well, crazy. Is there one you can reveal, any specific that stands out to you? This is a fun anecdote. There was a point at which there was this frustration building because we're trying to get good talent onto our books, right? And, you know, we're, we're looking for the right talent. We find one and then he says, well, no, Jim Lee is now getting in our way. So Bob Harris is on speakerphone. <laughs> I'm pretending to be working when all I'm doing is listening because he's on speakerphone with Stan Lee. And he and Stan are talking about what's going on, talking about Heroes Are Born, talking about this stuff. So I'm listening to this conversation because, of course, I'm fascinated. And, you know, they're sort of just talking in broad terms, right, in broad leadership terms, in broad industry terms. But, you know, because Stan was doing what Stan was and Stan was like 77 at this point. And he was working on the cartoons and, you know, whatever talking to movie executives. And Bob's like, listen, Stan, in a much more calm way than I, I sound very frenetic. Bob was always very calm. And he said, Stan, listen, you've got Jim Lee over here telling his freelancers that they're going to get the X-Men next. So it really puts us in a bad position. And then I hear this thing come out of the other end. Oh, f- Jim Lee. <laughs> and right now my mouth is open, but my mouth is open. I'm like, my back's to them. And if it was like the office, you'd be like, I'd be like one of those Chris Pratt things. I'd be like, oh, you know. <laughs> Yeah, so I heard that. And that, you know, there was a lot of that going on. And like I said, there was, so you'd start to make plans. You'd have Bobby Chase and Mark Wade, Ron Garney doing this amazing run on Cap, this sort of legendary run on Captain America. That gets taken away because of this thing that comes from on high. Then a year later or whatever it is, you've got these people working on this mature readers line, right? Something Marvel hadn't done in a while. So that's happening. And then all of a sudden Walmart comes in and this new president said, oh, you can't do it because Walmart says they won't order the books anymore if you do that. So, but I, I have a question, Jason. Throughout all of this, you're saying the X-Men are, you know, are the number one selling book. So you're just on an island, right? Like you're in the penthouse. Technically, your job and everything going on with you is untouched, right? It's everything else around it. Well, yes. I, look, uh, people always say, oh, well, the books are doing so well. And look, coming into work on the X-Men when I did was like coming on to be like a, you know, a story producer or whatever on the third season of Friends. That ship was running well, right? Whether or not people thought it was structurally great or story great, whether they liked what Scott Abdel was doing as opposed to what you know chris and jim were doing before or what have you it was running really well the books were the number one and number two books the, the core books were so i would say that i always told people back then you'd think that we'd be left alone you'd think that you could sort of coast but no there wasn't anything you were doing that wasn't under the microscope um because they were so high profile you know the color of the logo for each cover was looked at you know and so everything was looked at by a microscope hopefully by a productive one, sometimes not. Um, and those stories can be told by numerous guys who worked for us, you know, Joe Kelly, you know, Stephen Siegel. They had, a, they had a difficult time. It wasn't great. I don't really blame that necessarily on them. You know, I may have been responsible for some of that. So, you know, things weren't always smooth, but we tried to, we were always working our ass off to try to make sure that we were doing the best we could. 
Okay, well, here's the thing now, though. What's so interesting is that you're working on the X-Men, and it seems like the fortunes turn around eventually after the bankruptcy, and once Hollywood gets involved, and we finally get a live-action X-Men film that's a hit. But there were other films in development trying to get that trend started around this time. So, Michael, it's time we turn on the projector for you to tell us about some... Heroes in motion. That's my projector sound, by Very the way. Very nice. Really That's great. <laughs> he's a film professor, Jason. He knows from where he speaks. As with every issue over the last several weeks batman and robin casting news and superman the animated series updates are the lead stories but we're going to dive past that and into the indie comics world as we look at the scud the disposable assassin movie um scud the film is reportedly being developed by none other than oliver stone with participation from creator rob schraub and writer Dan Harmon, who would go on to have an impressive career with Arrested Development, Community, Rick and Morty, and so on. Oliver Stone was trying to make a Doctor Strange, Elektra, and She-Hulk movies, although none of those really happened in the 90s. There's got to be a story behind his failure to deliver. But Scud, which also never happens because... You know, it's great, Michael. Don't you speak ill against Scud just because you've never read it. It deserves to be a movie. I'm sad it's not a Netflix series already. Come on. I'm I'm not going to buy this garbage on eBay and read it. It never happens, but it's discussed of possibly being a mixture of live action, animation, and computer animation, and claymation. Wow. It's ahead of its time. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I mean, we've seen sort of things that do this nowadays with this mixture of, like, live-action animation, and it could be pulled off today. But to Honestly, to Lord 90s, and Miller, Lord and Miller doing Scud the Disposable Assassin, it would be a huge hit. That's all I'm saying. Well, and didn't didn't Harmon with Community, like, do a claymation episode? Oh, yeah. And a G.I. Joe animated episode, and yeah, he did all sorts of stuff. I gotta say, the first big comic book convention I went, to when I was trying to get a job in the industry was the summer 1993 Chicago con and they were very much comic book conventions. I was out in the dealer room, which was gigantic, right? Just gigantic dealer room. And I'm standing there. And of course I'm fresh out of college. I love comics. And who do I see? But Oliver Stone while walking through the dealer room, right? And I was like, oh, crap, look at that. And I see he's walking with his older gentleman. Holy shit, it's Stan Lee. He's walking Whoa. with Stan Lee. I saw that. This is the first time I'd seen Stan Lee in person. I see Stan Lee and Oliver Stone. I see some fans come up to Stan because Stan doesn't – this was 1993. Yes, Stan was ridiculously famous, but he was just walking with Oliver Stone, hanging out. And stops to talk to some fan or some professional or whatever. They're talking. Then Oliver Stone continues to walk on, and he gets probably 35, 40 feet, 50 feet in front of him. And then Stan realizes he's saying, he's politely saying goodbye. He goes, I have to catch up to Oliver Stone. So then all of a sudden, this is probably 74-year-old Stan at this point, 74-year-old man. I watched this 74-year-old legend now, like, take these gigantic, like, springing strides, right? Like, he's like a 35-year-old dude, like, to catch up to Oliver Stone. And to me, that was, like, the greatest thing I'd ever seen. And I'm pretty sure they were talking about She-Hulk. So. Wow. That's one little story I wanted to tell. That is amazing. Man. 
<laughs> but not cool. knowing that I, you know, I don't think I realized that Dan Harmon was involved in a potential Scud movie. That's I'm crazy. pretty sure that's how he got his foot in the industry because they were getting <sighs> these meetings with studios. Because I've listened to interviews with Rob Schraub and he's like, oh yeah, like Scud was in development with Oliver Stone. It was over here. It was over there. Like everybody wanted to make it, just nobody did. Nobody wow. pulled the trigger. Isn't that just the way? But you know who Stan Lee and Oliver Stone weren't talking about, Michael? Jim Valentino's Shadowhawk character has been in development through Wesley Snipes' production company before Tax Evasion as a live-action TV series. Just for side note, my other podcast, Box Office 30, is covering White Men Can't Jump with Wesley Snipes this month, so you should check that out. I'm just plugging myself because it was a pretty funny <laughs> conversation we had. Anyway, they're trying to do a Shadowhawk TV series, but now has been set up for an animated series on USA Network like Eric Larson's Savage Dragon. Now see, if it was an animated series, I could get I could buy into that. A live action Shadowhawk, I couldn't see them doing it oh, then. Oh really? Uh, continue on here. Of adapting his age stricken, spine breaking vigilante to kids programming, Valentino admits there will be some changes to the comic. <laughs> I don't think we're losing any integrity though. Hey, if the Toxic Avenger could get an animated series and a toy line in the 90s, there was hope for any character, no matter how violent. But of course, this never happens. And I just said, I could understand this as an animated series. Not necessarily spine-breaking and all that jazz. I know, but that's the core of the character. Otherwise, all you have is a guy in a costume. So what was the new story? That's what I would have loved to see. But you know what you could have done? Like, I don't remember when it was, but when did uh, Spawn have the HBO animated series? Well, all the Image guys should have had HBO series. I mean, yes, that's how you could have done it in their style, but I don't know. Like, Shadowhawk, he's so kind of one note in that way, that's what he's known for. You, you get things like Eon Flux on MTV, and... And, know, the Max. The and the Max. And the Max, you know, and, and those are, like, Eon Flux in particular is way mature, like... It's pretty kinky, yeah. Yeah, so, who knows? Anywho, speaking of Never Happens, though, the writer of the Spawn movie... Alan McElroy is writing the movie based on indie comics bad girl Razor, which is being produced by newlyweds Gina Davis and Rennie Harlan. So Razor never happened. Rennie Harlan also is not the greatest director, I will admit. He's not. He's made some He's stinkers. a great visualist. He gives you some flair. He's a very good cinematographer, but not the greatest director. Did he direct uh, the one where she was like the action hero, the spy? Long Kiss Goodnight, yeah. Long Kiss Goodnight, I like yeah. that. I thought that was good. Well, he did, he did Die Hard 2. Yes, I thought so. He did Nightmare on Elm Street 4. Like, that's how he got Die Hard 2. So, like, it's that's kind of what he was known for. I knew it. I knew he made Die Hard 2. Arguably one of the worst titled films ever. Die Hard 2. Die Harder. <laughs> you know, it's just such a bad name. That Die Harder was sort of equivalent to the 80s, uh, this time it's personal. 
You know, with yeah. Jaws 3D, I think was maybe Jaws 3D was the one that was personal. I think that one's four. Jaws four, yeah. That's right. Jaws four this time is personal. Isn't Jaws four the revenge? Well, well, it is the revenge, but then the tagline is this time it's, this personal. Time it's personal. Yeah. yeah but, <laughs> so I feel like those things, those things needed to exist just for the dialogue of the way we talk about movies. For many, many years, I thought Die Hard two Die Harder was the worst movie title of all time for a blockbuster until Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice came out like that's what you're gonna title batman and superman like speaking of which michael my kids had their first day at gymnastics today and my kid ninja training coach he had the batman and superman logo you know the ones the bat symbol with the superman shield inside of it now he had that tattoo on his arm i was like i don't think he's read the comic (laughs) to your earlier point i would tell you i'll bet that guy five bucks he's not read a batman superman i think he saw it in that will smith film I am legend. Um, I am legend, yeah. <laughs> when it was on the billboard, and we're like, yes, it's happening? Oh. All right, close us out. Finally, in more doomed comic adaptation news, Fox Family Films, say that five times fast, has announced their intention to produce a Silver Surfer film in a live-action movie based on the Beetle Bailey comic strip. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Not gonna do it. Not gonna do it. It wouldn't be prudent. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of these movies didn't get off the ground, but plenty of toys based on comics did, and they were making the bucks. So it's time that we get into some merch madness. So Toy Fair 1996 was the big news this issue with a friend of the podcast, previously mentioned Buddy Scalera, giving us the scoop on the excitement. It's actually reported that the toy industry brought in $18.7 billion in 1994, 33.9% of which came from the male action toys sector. And how much you want to bet more than half of that money was generated by Toy Biz? I mean, they, they had it locked. That being said, not all action figures can be winners. The tick line, for example, was being canceled by Bandai because the cartoon series skewed to an older demographic, they said, who wasn't buying toys. Ah, those college kids. Come on. Spoon. (laughs) But Jason, have you ever been to a toy fair or was there a figure announcement from a toy fair show that you recall being a big deal for you? You know, I did. I got to go to a number of toy fairs in the 90s, which was fantastic. This issue of Wizard, they actually show toys. I I did toy copy. One of my freelance gigs was copywriting for Toy Biz. So one of the things that allowed me to do is I got to see everything. So I, I knew, you know, Jesse Falcon and all these guys. And so I got to see a lot of these things with this particular issue they show venom the madness line and at the time they would do these things called two-ups because it was all sculpted by hand the two-ups were sculpted twice the size of a regular figure so these venom the madness they bring these things out to show me in a conference room a toy biz they're bringing out these venom the madness figures they were the craziest thing i'd ever seen they were gorgeous i mean they were beautiful painted up everything so i was like oh my god like how how are we even making these toys the 90s was a period where you very rapidly went from what toy biz was doing like in 1992 with these very almost like star wars figures not a lot of 
detail. Todd coming in with Todd toys, then McFarlane toys, changing the game where when you first saw the first Spawn toy, you're like, that's not an action figure. That's like a statue. So he started to make things, you know, with what the factories could do in China. So he was pushing it. Todd was out there. Yeah, man, just make it cooler. You know, he'd give you that note. Anyway, that's a true story. Like Todd would actually give that note to sculptors. Like, make it cooler. And Todd can, can do that. He knows what he's talking But one of the, if you want to hear a cool toy fair story, I'll give you a lame one and I'll give you a cool one. I'll give you the lame <laughs> one first. The year that the mask came out, right? Or the mask cartoon series. Kenner had a mask toy line and Kenner had a big showroom right down there on 23rd Street, right across from the toy center where a lot of the smaller companies were. And if you could get into the Kenner building for toy fair, that was always exciting because they had the coolest stuff. Anyway, so there was this guy who was playing the mask and I went two days that year. I went on day one and then I went on the last day and this poor guy like on day one he's like there's some smoking you know he'd be playing with the toys and everything and then by the end of the day he's like there's some smoking you know? <laughs> um, he was just exhausted and I also feel like people who weren't selling who weren't at Kenner but who were selling other toys I feel like I saw at least two other people say there's some smoking and I'm thinking like oh, you're not the mask toys you can't use that <laughs> so that's the lame story and I feel so bad but that was a great gig for actors at the time it was a great little fun thing for them anyway so I was there. What was it? Was it Batman Forever? Was the uh, the Riddler one? Was that Batman Forever? Yep. Okay. So the year that Batman Forever came out, I was not at DC Comics anymore, I don't think, but I had contacts there if, if I'm keeping all my years straight. And a friend's like, hey, you know, we're there. DC is throwing a party at Toy Fair. You know, I can get you a pass to come in. I was like, oh, that's super cool. So it's at the Kenner showroom, but after hours. Right? I was very excited. So I got to go to this party at the Kenner Toy Fair, you know, the exhibition center, whatever. And I get to go there for the party for Batman Forever. So I'm hanging around and I'm going through the Batman section, which has its own its own little like museum channel where you walk through and you see all the things. Now, the way it's set up is, is there like these displays and, you know, they're right there sort of in front of these dioramas. But there's not like a sheet of glass between you. There's a barrier that comes up to about your chest, right? And a little glass, you know, I don't think you could take photos or whatever. So I'm standing there just sort of admiring this thing. I've got a cocktail because they're handing out drinks right because we're you know this is a party this is an industry party and all of a sudden like i'm standing there again because you don't have a lot of time at toy fair to look at these things i'm just trying to get a glance at these batman figures right because i'm a toy nerd i want to see all the toys and all of a sudden to the left of me i see it's dark i see some guy like just reach over Right, he's reaching over to the toy and the display, and this guy grabs the Riddler figure, right, the Jim Carrey Riddler figure. He's like, "Oh, isn't this great? Look at him. He looks just like Jim." And it's the director of the goddamn movie, Joel Schumacher, and Joel Schumacher's a little buzzed. And I'm like, <laughs> Joel Schumacher's like holding this Riddler figure up, sort of up to my face. He goes, "Doesn't he look great?" And I was like, "And of course, I know who Joel Schumacher is." And I look at him, I was like, "Yeah." So inside, I'm like, "What's happening?" But I'm trying to keep it cool because I'm in New York, and uh, I'm just like, "Yeah, he looks so cool." I, I feel like we shouldn't take the toys though. <laughs> Because now I'm going to put it right back. And I realized at that moment, I was like, I guess if anyone can take this Riddler figure out of the display without getting in trouble, it's this guy right here. That is a story. Wow. That's my best Toy Fair story. And what else was it? I got to meet the concept artist for Star Wars. Uh, he was signing these little prints for Micro Machines, of all things. That is wild. Our, our previous co-host, who has taken his leave from the show, though, he ran into Joel Schumacher in an elevator. Nice. And was praising Batman Forever because he loved that movie. And Joel Schumacher's like, yeah, I just gave away all my Batman Forever merch that I had built up. And he's like, oh, no, I would have wanted it. <laughs> from all intents and stories, you know, Joel was an actually del a lovable, delightful yes. man. He really was a delightful guy. And I think, look, I mean, whatever, we, you know, those movies are a little derided, although I think they've got a new appreciation these days. But uh, mm -hmm. 
you know, he had a take. It was not the take that I think people were expecting or wanted. So yeah, I mean, I don't like to knock Joel Schumacher other than for Batman and yeah. Robin mostly, yeah. but like <laughs> he made Falling Down is an amazing film. Yeah. Oh my God, yes, yeah, The Lost Boys, baby. He made The, the Lost Boys. Boys. Yeah, no, Thin Red Line is a great movie. Like what was so it on Phone Booth? I think he did. Phone right? Booth is an amazing movie. Yeah. Amazing movie, and it's ba- it's based on a Hitchcock story, and it's really a great movie. But yeah, I just think his reputation as a filmmaker is just was stained by those two batman movies in particular batman and robin more so and who's to blame kenner kenner and dc (laughs) are to blame for forcing everything into that movie but i think he had a few ideas for his own aesthetic too yeah just real quick getting back to destroy fair 96 at this time what was rolling out they had a whole series of x-men toys that had light up battery operated weapons i loved these so much the psylocke and the gambit figures the gambit one in particular had the cards but they had like the energy blast that they were all connected to and he would stick it in his hand and it would light up like they were so cool but the wolverine that was a stealth wolverine is a goblin i don't (laughs) it is terrible i agree with you like the psylocke was a great concept right and the and the gambit very cool but then it's like okay what else can light up and it's like (laughs) a flaming sword for nightcrawler yeah cyclops's visor i guess I'm looking at the page right now, and I'm like, I guess we'll give Juggernaut a, what is that, the Sidorak uh, hammer? You know? Yeah, Jeez. it is bizarre. He doesn't need a weapon. I mean, also, like, in the mix, they have the Generation X Series 2 figures, Mondo and Banshee and White Queen, and that line just never took off. I don't, I don't know anybody that was excited about Generation X. I love the movie, the TV movie, but it didn't tie into the figures quite as well. The toys didn't look nearly as cool as the Chris Pacello drawings. Yeah, that's true. Now, they also were introducing an incredible Hulk line, which I loved because the boxes were gigantic, just like the Hulk. It was bigger than life. Yes. But I have the Mr. Fix-It Grey Hulk on my shelf over there here, right next to the She-Hulk from this series. I would love to find the Bruce Banner that would fit inside a Green Hulk body. Like, the sculpts on these are amazing. We're actually going to reveal who did the designs for them in just a second here. Okay, but okay. That, that's a great, great series that they released there. But, of course, Spider-Man at this time was huge selling. Big for me. I had so many of the Spider-Man. But they were doing all these spinoffs. So they had the Cyber War line, which had first-timers, Doctor Strange, Hydro Man, and Black Cat. You talked all about Venom the Madness there, Jason. Just yeah. a bunch of multicolored symbiotes and just crazy large sculpts and stuff. The weirdest, though, is Arachnophobia, which combines Spidey with enemies like Morbius, Hobgoblin, and the Lizard. Just these hideous amalgamations. Ahead of its time in a, in a lot of ways, right? I mean, I feel yeah. like there are... They do that all the time now. Like, oh, it's the Venom cover month. Now everybody's going to be a Venom. Uh huh. So I feel like these were very prescient. Now, the biggest one for me, though, were the collector's edition figures that they released. It was the first Jessica Drew Spider Woman, Ben Riley Spider Man, and Spider Man 2099. I still have my boxed Spider Man 2099 on my wall. It's on the card. I also have one that is loose just because I love Spider Man 2099. But, like, I bought all of those except 
except for the rhino that was part of that series. There was two different Venoms. One was like translucent. That series for me was just so fantastic. But do you guys have any particular memories of any of these? Michael, were you buying these figures? So I forgot about these figures until I saw these these pictures. And I remember the Psylocke figure. And I remember the Spider-Man with the gun in his hand figure. I, I remember seeing that in the store. And I did want that Jessica Drew Spider-Woman figure so badly. Yeah, I loved that cartoon back in the day. So when I saw that, I was like, what? Original Spider-Woman? I was writing a copy for these things, so I was seeing these things. But I gotta say, you know, I remember when I started in the business. I'll, I'll never forget, DC Comics had a thing. They had a Kenner Superpowers case on the wall, like a, like a Lucite case that Kenner made for them. And it had all the figures in it. Not in, just loose, but on this thing. And I remember in 1994 looking at that and thinking, oh my God, it's like all the Superpowers figures. Look how many characters they were able to do. And it was whatever. It was like 20 some characters they did, right? But it seemed unthinkable that you could get. So at this point in toy business evolution, they're really starting to hit a lot of characters, right? You're starting to see Doctor Strange. You're starting to see Hydro. And you're like, wow, we've got a Hydro action figure. You know, oh, we've got a Gray Hulk. How do we, you know, now we've got all these crazy Venoms. So it, it, it really was what's hard to imagine now, 26 years later, it, where we've got 100 different Wolverines, but we've also had five different Psylocks or seven different Psylocks and 10 or 15 different Phoenix action figures. At that point, you were so hungry just to get the character in an action figure form. That was exciting by itself, aside from the fact of what it looked like. Although at the time, relatively speaking, these were pretty great sculpts. Not compared to where we are now, but compared to where we were then, they were fantastic. So these were all, from my memory, this was just all very exciting. Not to say that we couldn't look at those light-up ones and say, what the hell is this? But (laughs) it was an exciting time because you got to really see a lot of the stuff. And so you would dream about these other characters that might one day get a figure. And now they all have. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was very exciting because the well was kind of running dry on the the top tier, right? So you started getting the more obscure. Yeah. Jessica Drew Spider-Woman, my God. But I do have a question here for you because Wizard had taken a poll amongst their AOL followers on the topic of action figures, and they asked whether fans preferred playability or appearance. So 44% voted for appearance, while playability won the poll with 56%. Now, this is seemingly contradicted by a (laughs) follow-up question by Wizard when they asked what the fans did with their figures after purchasing them. 59% said they put them on a shelf and 41% admitted to playing with their figures. So how can this be? Interesting. The numbers don't add up, Michael. You're a numbers guy. It doesn't make sense. But let me ask you, where did you fall in 1996, guys? Did you play or display? Play. Yeah, I was still playing with mine. <laughs> I was a very big grown-up, so I was and I was a degenerate collector. I don't even know if I displayed them. I just threw them in a box somewhere. <laughs> I I remember having a friend who had, like, the original, like, 12-inch G.I. Joe figures, and they were all, like, up way on a, like, a shelf, way in the high of his room, in the boxes and everything. Wow. And I guess he, like, inherited them from his dad or something like that or something. And I'm like... Why do you have those awesome G.I. Joe figures up there, like, in the box? You don't want to play with them? He's like, no, they're going to be worth money someday, so I got them up there. And I'm like, "Eh, that seems weird. Now I look back at that, like, 30 years later, and I'm like, this guy was on to something there. (laughs) 
<laughs> but what would your childhood have been, Michael, if you didn't play with those figures, if you didn't pose them? If you, like, I was making action figure movies with the yeah. family camcorder. Oh, you know, that's, that's what I was doing. Ah. I was staging the action. Did I, ever awesome. tell you, did I ever tell you my Kenny G story with action figures? <laughs> This is Kenny G, the saxophonist. Yes. Okay. Clarinet, if you want to be specific. But yes, saxophonist. (laughs) So, this is a really bad story. Really funny, though. I used to do this reenacting of, like, the Batman 89 movie. And I would do, like, the bell tower scene of my parents. Like, you know, big stereo system that they had. Like, all the different tiered record player. But the whole thing. And, like, Batman would be hanging off the glass door. And the Joker would fall to his death. And then as he would hit the ground and die i would hit play on the on the cd player and it was kenny g's silhouette was like the closing song for the movie because i didn't have the batman album that is fantastic you're welcome internet a full production yes i feel like we need to redub the movie now with that yeah i'm telling you it's a great song if you press play on kenny g's silhouette at one minute and 37 seconds in batman um, this is what happens <laughs> sync up to the movie it perfect. syncs up perfectly yeah <laughs> Now, guys, we are not done with action figures because this issue also features like two full articles about action figures. Now, one is a customization tutorial on how to make a homemade hero, a very popular section in the magazine. In this case, they took Aeolus from Hercules' The Legendary Journeys and transformed him into Captain America. I vividly remember this article, getting all the tips and then trying to make a few of my own custom figures. But did you guys ever attempt that? I mean, you were on the inside, Jason, did you ever ask somebody to, like, box something up for you that you wanted? Uh, no, I didn't. Um, I mean, I, I got to see things that weren't made. That's the thing. I would occasionally see a figure that wouldn't Ooh. get made, which was very frustrating because I was like, oh, that's going to be really cool. And I did get an action, a custom action figure gifted to me. <laughs> What was it? <laughs> well, uh, when I was in DC Comics, uh, a guy named Nick Bertozzi, he's a comic book creator, and I think he teaches at SVA now. He's a really talented guy, very smart guy. He took like one of those cheap 12-inch G.I. Joes that was out in the 90s, and during my birthday, uh, he gave me a GIMP action figure from Pulp Fiction. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> Which I still have to this day in a box somewhere with the rest of my stuff. Uh, thank you, Nick Bertozzi. But no, um... It's wild because there were there were some amazing customs back then, but my God, we've come so far. You know that 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 is the theme of my life. I think with all this stuff, it's with those three D printers. Yeah, you could do it all. I have a friend who actually uh, a guy named Jason who worked in toys, and I was in touch with him in the late nineties, and then we got re in touch the last few years. And boy, he's been doing like extensions of the Secret Wars line, and also uh, an extension of the Kenner Superpowers line. And the the work he's doing with his 3D modeling, it's just, I mean, it's off the hook. It's so good. Now, Michael, I I know you've been gifted a lot of custom figures, but did you ever attempt to repaint a figure or add some customization? Well, really and truly, the early Secret Wars Captain America, like, you know when there's like the paint on his nose would kind of wore off and you see the blue underneath it? I tried to touch that up once, and... It did not go well, and I was like, I will never do this again to any figure. Let's put it this way. I can't draw a straight line with a ruler. If you put a paintbrush in my hand, it's like it's like I'm having a seizure, and my hand just mm. can't hold still. <laughs> and I, I got to tell you, Jason, he has something called kinetifying his toys, oh. where they just break instantly. And we wow. did a video once where he had the Toy Biz Lex Luthor, you know, in the purple suit. Sure. And he had all the pieces, but it was in pieces. Wow. 
It, like, spontaneously combusts. Yeah. Wow. He's got a power. It's a, not a good power, but... <laughs> weird obsession with also, like, chewing off their feet and hands oh. for some reason. That <laughs> wow. Was that was a weird problem. The, I don't know. The only post-modification I ever did, I... Back in the 70s, the Bo, when the Boba Fett mail-away figures came out, I did mail-away for a few, so I had multiples. And because I played with Boba Fett a lot, like, the paint would start to rub off um, on his chest plates and stuff, mm-hmm. on his Beskar armor, or whatever it's called. <laughs> um, and so, I snuck out the uh, clear nail polish that my mom had, you know, just the clear coat or whatever, and I put... Mm-hmm. I used that little brush to put clear coat over his Beskar armor. So that when I played Ooh. with it, and I let it dry. <laughs> I still have that toy somewhere. But so that then the paint would stay intact because it had like an extra clear coat layer of protection. Well, that's nice. Yeah, I mean, I, I, def- I did a lot of customization back in the day. I took a, a Toy Biz Flash and turned it into Angel, but from that cover of Marvels where he's carrying the little alien-looking girl wow. up out of the crowd. And I, I, I was going to send it into Homemade Heroes, wow. but I never did. And I was just like, so I, I did I did a bunch of stuff like that. I, I kind of did original X-Men and I, I made made my own black costume Spider-Man figure before Toy Biz finally made the really nice one in the 90s. I actually have the Secret Wars one up on my wall as well. But So you sculpted like Angel's wings and everything? Like Yeah, I actually made him wings and attached them, and it was wild. Did you lose like Sculpey or something? What is I'm just curious. I, I don't think I went that far in sculpting yeah. the wings together. I think I made cardboard wings and then added the clay on That'll top work. of it, so they were pretty heavy. But, yeah. <laughs> but this other article here, I'm sure you can give us some insight here, Jason, because a toy story explains the process of creating an action figure, which is, is said takes 31 weeks and includes up to 300 people at Toy Biz. Now, there is an executive who explains about the character selection process we were talking about earlier. She says, quote, most of the guys in these meetings are fanboys, and they would love to see the most unusual, odd characters made, but the collector's market isn't the largest part of the market. You get the largest volume from the children. X-Men is a bottomless pit of characters. You can do Wolverine 15 different ways. And they did. <laughs> Add a zero to that. 150 different ways with Wolverine. My goodness. It's Joanne McLaughlin who said that. Um, Joanne actually hired me at Toy Biz, gave me my first freelance there. Yeah, I was uh, getting a tour through there. Uh, Jesse Falcon, who I had known uh, through my work at DC and stuff, was giving me a tour. I talked to her and she was like, what are you up to now? I said, I left DC. And she goes, well, I said, I'm doing some freelance writing. And she goes, have you ever done any copywriting? I lied. I said, of course I had. And she was like, hey, we need some help with the, uh, the, the catalogs coming out for Toy Fair and the Toy Fair script. Would you be interested in doing that? I said, sure. And she said, come to the office next Tuesday. I thought I was coming in for a, for an interview, but she had, uh, what I didn't realize, she had given me the job while I was just walking through the offices. So awesome. I get there and she's literally handing me the assignment. <laughs> <laughs> like I didn't even she was just let me know what your rates are I was, I was going to Barnes & Noble like trying to find books on copyright and like what do you charge what do you charge I had no idea <laughs> so that that was a great example of fake it till you make it she was such a lovely woman and most of the people at Toy Biz were very lovely I don't know if this is the case or not if this is accurate but it, doesn't it feel in a way it's sort of flipped like the collector's market is who action figures are made for now when I go to Walmart and I see the Spider-Man animated series you know new figures looking like they're from the 90s I'm like you're charging me 20 bucks for this. You're, I'm not buying this for a kid. Yeah, sometimes more. I, no, I think it does definitely seem like the action figure world has completely skewed, certainly within these figures, with the superhero figures. It's all collector-based now, right? It's all collector-based. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know that kids are playing with Marvel figures. 
these days. They they are playing with toys. I think if you go there, what do they have? They have like uh, what's the video Minecraft. game? Yes, you've got Minecraft. That's exactly what I was thinking. Then the other one with the really cool character designs, it's uh, Fortnite. Fortnite. Yes, you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> My kids are obsessed with Five Nights at Freddy's. Oh, yeah, Five That's Nights at Freddy's. Yeah, no, like a kid on Instagram taught me about Five Nights at Freddy's before anybody knew about it, like a follower. And I was like, what is this? Is it, It's Chuck E. Cheese, but they murder people? This is amazing. <laughs> yeah. And now it's Huggy Wuggy. That's the oh, no, latest one. That one I'm not. I don't know about that. Check it out. Um, Huggy Wuggy. <laughs> but no, so it's, yes, yeah, so it is... It's fascinating, and it's you know I hear, but you also hear the stories like like you can't even get toys anymore, right? They're like sold out. Oh, this is exclusive to Walmart, and I hear all these stories oh, yeah. of all these toy. What NECA is doing? Yeah, like yeah. you can't even get them. You know, yeah, it's it's like a bloodbath. It's it's ridiculous. Right? Yeah, you know, I don't collect toys too much anymore. Yeah, I like if I'm gonna pay that much for a figure, I just buy vintage now. Like, why would I buy a new one? Give me something with history. I did order, I guess pre-ordered, like, probably a year ago now, and it hasn't come out. Someone is doing, uh, maybe Medicom? Not Medicom. One of these companies that does these cool Marvel figures, they're doing a Bishop, but it's Bishop the Last X-Men, which is a book I worked on. So I was like, oh, they did Bishop the Last X-Men, which they almost, which Toy Biz almost did. And they didn't do right before I left the business. But so I was excited. But eventually it'll show up in my mailbox, you know, when it's made. But it was like 80 bucks, right? So that was like a... Yeah. And it sounds like, though, that there were a lot of people involved from Marvel. It wasn't, you know, Toy Biz just kind of taking a character idea and running with it. They say here, the character model sheets, quote, it's always done by a Marvel artist. For example, they say Ron Lim did the three views for the X-Men 2099 line, while Art Adams has done them for the upcoming Incredible. Hulk line. So like we were saying before, there's a reason those toys look so good. Like talk about the fanboys who worked up there. Like I guess they had the budget to hire Art Adams because like, you know, if you're gonna hire someone, yes, get Art Adams to do that. And Ron Lim, also fantastic. Like you're saying, like the talented people that work yes. there, because like especially the sculptors who were creating a fantastic figure. There's this guy, Steve Kiewis. Steve he Kiewis. was said to have quote sculpted three hundred Marvel figures, including a dozen Wolverines. Yeah, Jesse Falcon <laughs> who headed up most of that stuff who's amazing and has been an amazing creative head for all that all that stuff he was steve kiwis was his go-to guy at the time and boy steve was, awesome. steve was a workhorse but also a really talented guy the real shame at the time was that a lot of times what a, what like a guy like kiwis would do you know the factories couldn't reproduce so they dumbed down a lot one of the functions of the sculptors to know what the limitations are of course of the factories of the ability to to manufacture these things um but you know they would they would still push it you know and then of course todd was over there just make it cooler man i think we can get the undercuts the, cuts a little more to, the paint mask we can do fifty thousand paint masks on this so you know there was a lot of that going on but so he was yeah he was uh, i don't know that i ever met steve but boy i knew his name a lot yeah, well, and, you know, we're talking about how it's not for kids anymore. At this time, it definitely was. So yes. they had the stress testing they were doing on figures where they're, like, dropping the toys from various heights. They're burning them. They're squeezing them in a vice. You know, they're, they, they should have just sent them over to Michael's house. <laughs> <laughs> Especially for me, because I saved all my card backs. They were a work of art to me. Yes. And the, the Toy Biz philosophy, Avi Arad himself says their, their idea is that, quote, from our point of view, this is as good good as a comic book cover and i always felt that way i still have a stack in my closet i cleared out a few you know several years ago but i still have a lot of them and i enjoyed every inch of them yeah they 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 did a great job except when they would do the the repaints that all use the same card back that went to kv oh yeah like the the marvel hall of fame or whatever it was yeah that was too bad 
Just to give you a funny little anecdote about that, I, when I was doing the copy for these things, oh, it's a line of five Spider-Man figures. These are the characters. Come up with a story. Like, I just made up stories, right? I was, like, writing, like, the Hostess Fruit Pie stories, right? It's like, I'm going to write, <laughs> you know, especially with those those Hall of Fame ones. But so I'd write a little story that would involve the five characters. The story would play out across the different card backs, right, in the bios. Believe it or wow. not. Yeah. But with those Hall of Fame ones, I had, like, seven sentences where I had to, I had to include five characters. <laughs> but I would literally, my challenge would be, because I, now I, it was only getting paid once instead of five times. So I would try to tell a story about five characters in like five or six sentences. And I think I must have some of these things. I would love to go back and find out how completely inane they are. <laughs> Wow. I, yeah, I would love to read them now. I'd be like, Jason worked on this. Yeah, All right. it's insane stuff. Anyway. Now, we have to close out, though, because when you really look back at what superhero entertainment has been, the way comic books have been adapted, Avi Arad owns our childhood. He owns everything that we, like, hold dear. He is the guy who kind of pushed all this stuff into action. Did you meet Avi Arad on, uh, with any regularity? Do you have any fun Avi stories? No, you know, I never met Avi. I heard about Avi a lot. Um, when I was having my meetings with Scott Sasa, he was like, have you met? He actually asked me the same question. Have you met Avi? And I was like, no. He was oh, interesting guy. He's like, uh, <laughs> He's like Johnny Cash. He always wears black. You know, he's like, I was like, oh, yeah, no, I get it. I knew who Avi was, obviously. I mean, he was working all of the cartoons and everything, and uh, and then later on the films and stuff. But, uh, you know, like, Avi was the charismatic face of Toy Biz. And, uh, but no, I wish, I wish I could say I knew him. All I knew were stories. You know, the guys I knew, like my friend Jesse, these people, they all dealt with him a lot, but I never, you know, I never dealt with him. All right. Well, I do feel like Avi Arad was the hype man of the action figure biz. He was hyping Marvel every chance he got. But there's a couple other guys who know a little thing about it. So we're going to rev up Jim and Todd's Hype Machine. All right, now, again, the toy news is all over the place here. And it's funny, because in the Toy Fair report, Buddy Scalera notes that Todd McFarlane was busy inking pages for Spawn number 43 while presenting his latest round of action figures, declaring, I gotta get this out by Friday. <laughs> That's amazing. Now, also at Toy Fair that year was Rob Liefeld hyping his Youngblood figurines from Treadmasters after he had moved his license away from McFarland Toys. Why would you do that? There's also an interesting piece here in Buddy Scalera's opening where he explains that Quote, one of the highlights of the show was the limited edition of McFarland Toys' Corn Boy. A limited edition of exactly one, a homemade figure in real packaging. Corn Boy is a goofy depiction of a local pizza delivery boy near McFarland's office. The figure, which hung on the showroom wall with all the other Spawn figures, wasn't for sale, but was funny to see. Now, this has stuck with me since 1996 when I first read this issue, just the mystery of Corn Boy. And the idea that uh, they actually did produce a figure eventually that was a like kind of muscle bound like full of all these like technical things attached to it figure called corn boy and i don't know if this original mock-up one-off figure was that or i mean they're saying it's a pizza delivery boy eric corn boy maze who actually did work for mcfarland toys as a sculptor has gone on record you know he's been interviewed on other podcasts and things like that where he says he got the job at mcfarland toys he was working in a machine shop and had gotten some connection to their offices and then that's how 
how he got in there for the job. It had nothing to do with being a pizza delivery boy, at least as he tells the story. So I don't know if that was like a joke that Todd McFarlane just kind of made. And then people were like, oh, well, that must be the truth. Or I mean, was there another corn boy that predated Eric Mays working there? I don't know. So it's, it's kind of a mystery, but he went on to be one of the four horsemen, like this group of very, very renowned and popular toy sculptors. You know, they even got to redesign the He-Man figures in the early 2000s and they continue to do high profile work. So that just really surprises me, you know, that it inspired a one-off figure. Pretty impressive when you think about working at a machine shop, then going on to work for McFarland Toys and being that big a deal. Yeah, I didn't know that part of his story, but I've, I've, I remember the corn boy. I remember, I remember the stories. I remember seeing this figure and I was like, I wonder what ever happened to that corn boy guy. And thanks to you, I now know he's, and of course I know who the four horsemen are because I do pay attention to toys. They do incredible work. That's crazy. Isn't it? That's, a, that's such I mean, a great story. He had story. his own action figure yeah. before he was anybody of note. Yeah. He was just a joke. <laughs> Uh, now, of course, as we discussed earlier, Jim Lee got a lot of attention for this cover and for the interview and everything that was going on. Not so much positive attention on Jason's side. <laughs> a lot of attention as he's scheming behind the yes. scenes. We got to bring this guy down. I mean, I love those guys. I also love my job, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, like I was uh, like I was trying to protect the way a company published comics. <laughs> But it was interesting because that article also had a sidebar listing Jim Lee's highlights from his career at Marvel. Yeah, it seemed yes. like it was to benefit younger readers who had forgotten or didn't even know he worked on The Punisher and X-Men at Marvel at one point. It's just like, that Wildcats guy! <laughs> He's a yes, big deal! Yes, because it like all of four years or five, whatever, six, seven years I know, but so much had happened. It's right? true. Now it was a very full time. And he had taken a year off from penciling comics, but now he was kind of back this year in a big way. He had done some Gen 13. Now there was an ad in this issue for Wildcats number 31, where Alan Moore was writing the story. Jim Lee is penciling it. Wow. There's also an announcement about Image and Marvel one-shot crossovers. So there was X-Men Wildcats, which I believe Travis Charest ended up doing. Eventually. <laughs> yeah, it came about. Yeah, you can tell us about that. What do you know? Not much. That was that was not really done by our office. And that was mainly handled by those guys. But Travis Charest, I mean, this guy. I remember when he did an issue of Wildcats, and there's like a double-page spread of like this car smashing through a wall or whatever, and the car is spread out across this double-page spread. I remember laying it down in front of somebody and saying, look at this. I mean, what they are doing in this book is so beyond what anyone else is doing visually in a book. What Travis Jure is doing in a book is insane. I said, I don't know how you compete with this. You know, I thought he was so good. Now, I would later find out that Travis Jure, the way he draws, like, you know, most guys who are doing comics, if you're familiar with comics, they'll lay it out. They'll sketch out. They'll lay out, you know, in sort of rough forms, the panels, the characters and everything else. Travis Charest will have a script. And, you know, at least he did at the time. This was this was the myth, but I but I it was true. So all of a sudden you just start drawing on a certain part of the page, right? And you're like, what's he drawing? And then you realize, oh, he's drawing like the trigger in a gun, right? And then he would start to draw out from the trigger of a gun. And he would literally build out the page like he was sculpting it out of stone. So he would draw wow. from this point and just draw out almost like in a circular motion. He would draw the page out from the single so he would never lay out the panels. He wouldn't lay out the figures he would just draw out from a point isn't that insane that is fascinating the, the bad part wow. about travis is eventually like joe metterera after him you know he just he just wasn't producing you know and so he was working for jim 
obviously Jim loved him, respected him. But I think at one point, I think Jim paid to have him like move in with him or move into the studios. And so he was working every day at Wildstrom just to get that stuff done. Just to make sure it was getting done. But talk about an incredible, incredible, talented guy. And I think he's doing like movie stuff now, right? But I've, I've wondered about Travis because he is one of the most Artur sort of just amazing guys who just really blew so many people out of the water visually before what he was doing. And I mean, also on the docket here was Gen 13, Generation X. Gosh. Of course, you know, everybody knows Gen 13 was originally called Gen X. I took all the print ads that were for Gen X that when they were promoting it as Gen X, and I have it framed on my wall. That's amazing. Like, just to say, this is what could have been, wow. you know. But there's also Bad Rock and Spider-Man and Bad Rock and Wolverine wow. from Extreme Studios. God. So that happened. Jeez. I think I blocked those things out of my mind. There was a Spider-Man backlash, I think, also of Eventually, they did uh, from Wildstorm. But now, finally, Jim is also listed in the lineup of creators who are doing one-shot stories in the new Batman Black and White series. Michael, did you read Batman Black and White? I did. Not at this time, but years later, I did, yes. Okay, because I know you were transitioning out of comics at this moment. I didn't know if this is something you went to the store for. What I will regret is that I never really went after buying a lot of the original black and white statues. There are certain ones that I loved, and you just can't find them anymore. You can't get them. They did some, like, reproducing of some of them that aren't, like, it's not the same as the original ones, and I regret not getting those. But, yeah, I read the series years later, but not during this time. Well, we have an odd going tally here, Jason, so I will tell you that in this issue, Jim Lee is mentioned ten times, blowing Todd out of the water, he only got a mere four mentions. That brings our running total since issue one of Wizard Magazine. Jim Lee has been mentioned 321 times, Todd McFarlane, 334. Wow, you are doing the math. <laughs> it started out as Rob and Todd's sure. hype machine, but but then we had a falling out with Rob. Did we ever fall in? <laughs> he was mad at us and blocked us Aww. and said some cruel things. So he got retroactively erased from history. Uh, you know, <laughs> and we were about 20 issues in, and Adam went back and recounted all the gym names instead, because he's a wow. s- psychopath. <laughs> No, you know, like, I, I'm, I'm curious about, like I said, I've got a lot to say about Rob. I am curious about him. You know, I, like I ran into him. Obviously, I've been out of the business forever. And I ran into him, God, probably like 10 years ago at New York Comic Con. He's like, hey, how you been? So we're talking, we're catching up. He has me come behind his booth, sit down, you know, we're catching up. But I mean, it's fine, whatever, we're talking. And then like four or five years ago, someone says, hey, you know, it's just about Rob Liefeld's booth. Rob Liefeld said, you know who I really don't like in this business? Jason Liebig. And I was like, what? What? <laughs> I was like, what are, you, what are you talking about? Like, I haven't even done anything. Now, admittedly, you know, Rob, like I was going to bring Rob in for Counter X and there was all that stuff. And we didn't even get to this. My, one, of my, one of my other great stories, when Heroes Were Born launched, there was a party, a Marvel party down at Opener's Bar where a lot of guys hung out, not far from where Marvel was at 27th and Park Avenue. And Rob was there. Rob came. And I apologize for now breaking into song with this Rob Liefeld story, but it happened. <laughs> you know, there were a lot of people. They were going up to Rob congratulating him, right? Now, I knew these people. They were Marvel people. They hated Rob Liefeld, right? They, you know, they hated his artwork or whatever. Oh, no feet, blah, 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 big shoulder pads, all the typical stuff, right? And I was like, I felt like they were being very disingenuous. And I, I felt, you know, like, gosh, like, congratulations to the guy. But I'm not going to, like, spout a bunch of bullshit. 
my whole thing was try to be authentic, try to be honest with people, right? So I'm talking around life. I'll like, introduce myself. Hey, you know, I'm the assistant under the X-Men. I'm Bob's assistant. Da, 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 da. Congratulations on the success of this thing. And I got to say, <laughs> I, I know why it's exciting. I know it's a good, but you know, and I can't remember exactly, but basically, not even basically, I said, you know, I'm not really a big fan of your artwork right now. I said that to a <laughs> lot and you had a pair on your back then, I'll tell you. I, I, well, that's yeah, I could tell you other stories. Let me get to the Joe Casada and the Bill Jenna stories. They're the ones that got me fired. I had big brass balls then. No, I was just really stupid and I, I didn't have a sense of danger. But so Rob had an amazing answer. You know, Rob answered for a while. He said, you know, I appreciate you telling me that. And, you know, he started talking about his artwork and he hasn't been drawn for a while and he's come back. And he went through this whole thing, which I thought was very sincere. And he said, you know, at the end of it, talking about like going back and looking at his artwork and trying to do new things and everything. At the end of it, he said, so, you know, I'm not really a fan of my artwork that much right now either or what, I, what I've been doing. And I thought that was a really great answer. And I, you know, and in that moment, I, I thought, wow, that was a really wonderful thing for him to say. Right. You know, I thought because I really came at him with what I really thought, which is what which I which I said, man, I wish people were just honest. With this guy, he's just a human being. Right. You know, I was like, I was like, you know, whatever. There were some unprofessional things. But as far as like him being vilified because he doesn't draw feet, I mean, gives a f you know, it's like, I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, so it's like, yes, he was very young and very successful. And that's a complicated thing on its own. Um, later on, when I was, you know, when I was going to try to bring him on to sort of re-envision the secondary X-Men books and, w and I ended up bringing in Warren Ellis instead. You know, the thing about Rob was, and I realized Rob Liefeld was an idea machine, right? Very comic booky. This is the thing about Rob. You, you will be hard-pressed to find someone who loves comic books as much as Rob Liefeld. Truly, authentically loves comic books. And he truly does, right? Aside from whatever failings he might have professionally or personally in his personality, he do, does truly love comic books. He's read them. He loves them. George Perez, he loves it. The old, you know, Jack Kirby, he loves all that stuff. You know, all these things. He truly, truly loves it. He has very comic booky ideas. When we were talking about reinventing the sort of secondary X-Men books, he had ideas. He was like, wouldn't it be cool if we had a sentinel, like a sentient sentinel who becomes a member of X-Force or something? I was like, that's insane. But I also thought, that's kind of what we need. We need kind of insane ideas. And the idea would be, Rob would come in with these insane ideas. Then I'd bring in these young writers who were talented writers, and they would be sort of tasked with taking Rob's really comic book etic ideas, right? These toyetic ideas, these comic book ideas, which Rob was so good at, and sort of really give them a depth, right? Because Rob also, look, Rob was hiring Alan Moore to write, what was it? Supreme? What was this character? Yep, yeah, Supreme. and Yeah, yeah so he was already doing that on his own. And I thought, oh, if we could do this for some of the X-Men stuff, this would be genius, right? So I thought I could pull it off. And then, of course, there were our disagreements. He wanted to bring in his own digital colors. I said, oh, we have these contracts. We can't do it. Irish color house. Well, that's non-negotiable. And at that point, I was like, I've been talking to Warren. And once he said it's non-negotiable, I was like, well, okay, I guess then I got to go with the other guy. I saw sort of used that as an out. It was probably not the coolest thing I'd ever done. But he told me, no, if we can't have that, then we're not doing this deal. Then I was like, okay. But that was the story of Rob and all that stuff. And that's a shame. You know, and, I, and Rob blocked me on like Twitter or something. And believe me, I was not even digging Rob. I would not do that. It's, it's not hard. And uh, glad to know you're in the club with us. <laughs> yeah, well, it was, you know, I mean, look, good for him. You know, he created Deadpool. It's become this thing and he's enjoying it. And, you know, he's a he's a family man. And, you know, I did get surrounded by he and uh, Jeff Loeb and another creator at the bar at San Diego. And they were just assailing me about what was wrong with the X-Men. It was Eric Larson, Jeff Loeb and Rob Liefeld. And they were just at me. 
I mean, let me guess. They're like, you should get Chris Claremont, Terry Austin, and John Byrne back. I think that's really what's at missing. At the time, you know, at the time, they wanted, like, Joe Casey on the X-Men. That was before Joe Casey had done the X-Men. And because I had helped bring Joe Casey into mainstream superhero comics. And whatever, Joe w- was problematic in his own way once he got there. Because I brought in James Robinson, and then he was sort of mentoring Joe. And then when James decided to leave Cable, um, Joe came in. And then Joe was like, I'm in, boy, I can write superhero comics with my arms tied behind my back. You know, well. Sometimes it seems like you are. Um, no, he really is talented. What, you know all that stuff. But like he, he was immediately like wearing sunglasses all the time, and I'm like, what? What are you doing? <laughs> In retrospect, I think I understand what he was doing. He was branding, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, yeah, anyway. But Rob, interesting cat, man. Like you say, he is an idea machine. I mean, that's, you cannot take that away from him. He's got ideas. Someone asked me who I thought the most influential person of comics in the 90s was. And I said, Rob. You know, Jim was more talented, whatever. Todd was certainly more of a uh, successful entrepreneur in creating these things. But I said, Rob was influential. He defined 90s comics in a lot of ways. And I I believe Rob deserves criticism, right? Rob does deserve criticism. And I think sometimes, personally, and certainly some of the people he may have said nasty things about, he deserves antagonism. I truly have been puzzled by the level of vilification that people have given him over the years. And this would tell, I think I was having this conversation 22 years ago, saying it in 1999, I don't understand the vilification toward Rob Liefeld. I know these days with social media, he probably brings some of it upon himself because that's a skill he probably has. And you know, we will say this for all the crap that we give Rob, he started it, but uh, we certainly just kind of have some fun poking at him and digging up those pieces of the past. Uh, His mother did pass away recently, so we do just want to send out our condolences to Rob and the Liefeld family. You know, it's definitely not malicious on our part, the things that we share. You know, he's just a fascinating character. He is someone with his eccentricities that have been well documented, and we're just reporting on what has been presented over the years. But terribly sorry to hear that, Rob. All the best to you. Jason, thank you so much for your candor, for the stories. We know you got a million of them. That's why we got to have you back someday. But it was a lot of fun. So great. So, But why don't you go ahead and tell us what you are doing these days, where people can find you, and what they should do to get connected. My main social media account, the place I spend the most amount of time in, is Instagram. And I'm on at Collecting Candy on Instagram. I'm doing a lot of things on History Channel right now. I'm I'm one of the featured experts and talking heads in a one wonderful show called The Food That Built America. There's another show coming out in history, a similar brand history thing. Honestly, I think it's only got a working title right now. Last I heard it was called Fast Histories. I don't know if it's actually going to be called that. I'm going to be featured in that a lot as well. That's on that. Aside from that, there's a lot of stuff that I can't really talk about. But one of the things I do is if television shows are doing period brands and period packaging, I am brought in to consult on a lot of that. I've worked on everything from Mad Men to uh, Queen's Gambit to Stranger Things. And I'm working on a really cool one right now for a network I cannot mention for a series I cannot mention. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we can't wait to see it. It's set in a time not of the present and I'm getting to do a lot of fun things for that. But like I got to put like that ego box that Eleven walks around in Stranger Things. That was all made from scans of my original here because I've got the only one. That is awesome. That's the kind of stuff. But mostly I'm on Instagram and you can see me a lot. Like every Sunday night, I'm going to probably be found on History Channel. Well, thank you again, Jason. We definitely have to have you back because we didn't even get into your stories about your dealings with Wizard Magazine. When we get to that issue, the invitation is extended. But the invitation is always open to you, the listener, to come back for another episode of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics and to content 
contact us on social media. Find us on Twitter at Wizards Comics, on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics. Are you subscribed to the YouTube page? If not, you're missing out. Continuous haul videos. We get new 90s comics, wizard promotional posters, and everything else. We are continuing to grow the archives and sharing the finds with you. And of course, remember that coming up next year after our mini episode for episode 57, we will have coverage of the Spawn Special Tribute Edition magazine with a very special guest who knows all about the collectibles, who knows all about the world of Spawn since the beginning. So you are going to want to tune in for that. But until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.